Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Hello, BFG. How are you? Hello. Oh, what's that accent you're putting on? I'm just trying, trying to pronounce hello like they do in the <laughs> in the Sherlock Holmes stories. Hello. I don't quite hello, know how to pronounce it. I think you're doing good. That's how I read it. Hello. What's I, this? Hello. Who's there? Hello. Who's there? Yeah. I guess at what point, what point did they decide, you know, with the modern English language to go from hello to hello? I think that was really the beginning of the downfall, if you think about it, you know. We went from hello to hello, and now we have OMG. <laughs> is that a greeting? Is it? Now, who knows what who knows what it is nowadays? I thought it was just an expletive. Uh, I guess so. <clears throat> anyway, how you been, buddy? Been about a month now, I guess, since last we've spoke. My heart has ached, uh, so I'm excited to be back. Uh, my heart was aching as well, and... Uh, Hopefully it will be unached today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sutured right back up. Sutured right back up, yes, indeed, to continue well, the metaphor. I remember last time uh, we were talking there last month, and I was talking about the winter and how the winter here has kind of hung on over here in Scotland, and it just hasn't gone away. Well, everybody in my family has been sick since. Uh, my wife last week, my daughter before then, I was sick all last week too with a cold, but it wasn't anything that kept me off at work. But there's stomach bugs going around, there's... Man, there's all kinds of shit that's just, it's like, I don't know, the dampness, the, the cold, the snap, the freezing rain, it's just nonstop here. And then you get a couple of days of sunshine that's kind of thawed things out, and then, of course, it goes shit again. And you just can't get a handle on um, on the weather over here right now in March. And it yeah. got me got me thinking about um, the winter weather that Doyle describes in some of the home stories down in London. And I tell you, it's nothing like that. No, it doesn't have that kind of romantic uh, kind of view that he to- he has towards it anyways. No, and, and neither Watson nor Holmes ever seem to be sick or dealing with a head cold. No, what, uh, I mean, Holmes gets headaches for other reasons, but, uh, mm. but, 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 but beyond that, yeah, you don't really see them suffering too much from the elements per se. Not so much, uh, which is kind of funny because we got another story we're going to deal with today that includes a storm. Yes, that is true. Uh, yeah, episode 15. 15 episodes. That's a long way to be into a project. And we're about the 70% mark, I'd say, of our way through the entire canon. We're dealing with the last four stories in The Return of Holmes today. After this, we're going to have two short story collections and one novel left to go. How can we have three novels down, uh, all these short story collections, and only be 15 episodes? It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I think because... You know, we're doing three or four shows per episode, so mathematically, it, it properly works out. And plus, we're we're kind of we're boosting up how many we're adding extra stories into each episode the past couple of weeks now. So, 
um, I guess it's the cap, cap, well, not weeks, but months. So I guess it seems like, uh, yeah, we're, I guess we're cramming them all in there now. But we're cramming them in yeah. in a good, efficient, workmanlike manner. That's right. We don't want to use the word cramming and associate its negative connotations with the work we're doing because the service we provide uh, for posterity, ourselves and our listeners, is really beyond compare. Minus a couple of technical and professional issues every now and then. You call them issues. I like to think of them as peccadillos. You know, I, I like to think of these things as the, the, the amateur touches that make people want to come back. Ah, it's like the the um, indie kind of spirit. I like it. <laughs> well, they're the amateur touches that allow us to have other things in our lives. Because if we were full time at this, and sure, we'd have a better production. But it's kind of what's fun and fresh about it all. You know, we, we do our notes, we do our research, we do our reading. And we come at this fresh. We don't talk before about what we want to do, how we want to say it. The only thing that guides us is our is our pipes and, of course, um, the knowledge that we're going to have some good banter and uh, discussion along the way. All right. Just so I don't look like an ass uh, coming up in the next couple of minutes, how do you pronounce it? Is it pince-nez or pince-nez? Uh, you're closer with the second one. It is pince-nez. Pince-nez. Okay. Yeah. you got to think French. you got to think French when you say that. I've thought French since grade nine, and I live in Ottawa. How wonderful is that? Mm. Well, to be fair with you, I, I didn't really. I mean, I was calling it the Pintnez when I started as well, um, and it's only through looking into it that I've. And I obviously knew that it was, you know, not correct. But like a lot of things that us um, entitled white middle class individuals get on with, I guess we kind of turn the other cheek, don't we, to the to the rightful. It's true. I'm not proud of, of that. I'm not of proud French of that. I'm just saying. And France. Don't you find that like in these short stories, we're kind of robbed of some kind of really exciting prospects at the end of, at the beginning of each story here? Like the boulevard assassin, assassin that um, Holmes manages to outwit and he gets the order of, of the Legion of Honor in France and, and some count or something that we hear about. And like when we miss all these globetrotting adventures, then we get like Watson's little, I don't know, like, Oh, this exciting story happened in uh, in London, or outside, or out in Chatham, or something like that. And you know, but it was it was one of the, it was one of those the greatest adventures ever. And then yeah. at the end, we're kind of like, was it? Yeah. Was it really? Yeah. I know what you mean. It's like it's like let me tell you a story about the Super Bowl. But first, you're not going to get the Super Bowl. I'm going to take you to this let little this little village gala. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, I, I hear what you're saying, but, you know, that's that's just what Watson does, and that's what he's been doing this whole time, like, telling you about the great things that he can or can't tell you about Holmes, but really, I want to focus on this little thing. Now, you're lucky, because you get one of the, the good Watson kind of Sherlock dynamics in in uh, in your story uh, that, that, that you cover, the, uh, the missing quarter, missing three quarter. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, um. I'll okay, so I'll reserve this, my judgment. I, I think this is that. interesting. I'm already seeing some sort of uh, friction here. So <laughs> that's let's good. Uh, that's good. let's let's move forward then. Let's let's dive into the last four stories of the return of Sherlock Holmes. Excellent. Now this is a little uh, unorthodox. Obviously, the uh, the publication of the short stories has come in batches of twelve, and when we get to the second stain and really the Abbey Grange, I'll explain why this is a thirteenth. But yeah, we've got four stories to do today. We're going to look at the adventure of the Golden Pin- Pince-Nez. There I went, about to say Pince-Nez. Uh, we're going to look at hmm. the adventure of the Missing Three-Quarter. Then we're going to do the Abbey Grange. And we're going to finish off today with the adventure of the Second Stain. All right. 
We don't need so, to explain our pipes, do we? We don't need to explain the pipes. No. Well, yeah, I guess we should. We should. Go ahead. Pipes, acronym, principles, investigation, perpetrators, environs, or environment, supporting cast, dramatis personae, what have you. Um, we mark these out of five. This is how we evaluate each one of the Sherlock Holmes stories. Job done. Gives us our index at the end because eventually we're going to take on the Moby Dick task of ranking these things. Probably not all 56 but uh, or 60 tales, but we're going to rank our favorites and our tops. So yeah, it's going to help. It's going to help us. It's going to inform our decisions. But um, this is really interesting. The more and more data we collect, the more and more I look at it in comparison, the more interested I am in, in just seeing how my opinions have changed and evolved since we began this last January. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, uh, yeah, definitely. I think we're seeing a lot of the patterns now in the writing and and whatnot, and we're seeing kind of, the, you know, the, the basic algorithm of how Arthur Conan Doyle puts his stories together. And I think in, it, it, this is a good thing because it allows us to see the form, but it's also slightly negative because in a way we're kind of seeing, when, when he's at his weakest, I think we're seeing uh, the, predict, the, the predictability of it all. Yep, that's a good point. Good observation, and we're definitely going to uh, dig into that with a couple of these tales here today, I think. Um, Let's start with the Golden Pince-Nez, then. This is, uh, interestingly enough, a lot of people really like this story. Uh, Good reads, index, average, 3.7. We've seen bigger stories rate poorer in the community. Uh, I got a few reviews here, but first I'll tell you that the uh, Pince-Nez was published in The Strand in July of 1904, and it appeared in Collier's Weekly a couple months later uh, at the end of October 1904, the 29th of October edition. This is the only story uh, which offers the canon a reference to the Tsarist police state in Russia, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, a couple of reviews then uh, from from our friends at Goodreads. I don't think I could be friends with Sherlock Holmes. I'd feel so stupid all the time. Three stars from Rachel. I can't comprehend it. Therefore, it's bad. <laughs> well, three stars. I don't know. Is that bad? Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, I, I, I don't know what her uh, <laughs> standards, like how her, her rating standards are. So maybe she has, maybe she rates out of six or, or out of five or something, right? Then it, would, then it would kind of be like mediocre, I suppose, or fair, I guess, in this case. No, I think everything's rated out of five on Goodreads. Okay. I would say three is probably fair to good. Right. Uh, I like this one. Um, probably going to butcher the name here, but I believe it's pronounced uh, Zelko. Zelko, Z-E-L-J-K-O, maybe an Eastern European name. or Oh, like Zelko Ivanek, the American character actor. Well done. Good work, buddy. I wouldn't have put that together. So yeah, you know, uh, name the X Files episode that he was in. I can't. You can't? How the hell can I? I don't even know that. I don't know that name. You know what? I don't even remember the name of the episode, but it was a, <laughs> it was a really it was a, no, actually, I do remember the name of the episode. Okay. It was okay. called Roland. Oh yeah, Roland. Yeah, okay, that's the one with the boy, the the uh, the the guy who's working in the in the nuclear or no, what's the, the the lab, right? The physics lab where they're the uh, light, aeronautics you know, lab, something aeronautics like that. Lab. Yeah, that's a good one from season one. Yeah, yeah. But great. you see that guy then, then that guy's like that guy's like in everything nowadays. Oh, okay. I'll check it out. That's a great Mark Snow score episode. That one. 
It was, yeah. Very, anyway. Very, very sad and somber. Yeah, so he says, four stars, Holmes solves a case by smoking a lot. <laughs> Which is kind of cool. Um, then we got this one, Joanne, a five-star review from Joanne. She says, a past betrayal ends with the death of two innocents. Holmes solves the mystery of the wearer of the golden pince-nez and sees justice done to a young man who was wrongfully sentenced to work the salt mines of Siberia. Now that's more a plot mention than a uh, a review, Joanne, but thanks anyway. And uh, Mary, four stars for this insightful barb. This particular adventure features a lovely interaction with Russian history. That's okay. it. And that's okay. it. So that's 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 a very um, what's the word lukewarm. I was going to say concise, uh, but not exactly evaluative review. Oh, no. Neither of those are particularly evaluative. Yeah, I they're like statements of fact, kind of just like blurted out randomly. Well, that's what you get when you go to the uh, good folks at Goodreads. We'll we'll blame. Uh, all the Sherlock uh, fan clubs and and uh, historiographers for Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle for not having, you know, any um, extant, uh, <laughs> you know, popular and critical reception to these stories. I think we should. And I also think we should look at this as an example of why the service that we're providing is a good one, because we are filling a void. You know, we're not experts. We're enthusiasts. We're, um, you know, we're not we're not trying to be Sherlockians. In fact, we often come in head to head, butting heads with some Sherlockian theory, as we will again today, I think, with a couple of points I'm going to raise. But you know, we're giving we're giving people more than this Goodreads and less than the encyclopedic, um, obsessive compulsive devotee Sherlockian attention. Yeah, they're almost like on a like uh, Trekkie, hardcore Trekkie level, if you think about it. Like, not original Trek kind of fans who are kind of cool in their own retro way, but people who are, like, obsessed with Enterprise. Well, i tell you one thing. I have not met, um, in my reading at least, I haven't come across a group of fans that are more uh, invested. And maybe it's because I, I'm not that well read in fandom as a as a trend, you know, uh, within different disciplines and within different arts and media. But the Sherlock Holmes... Um, enthusiasts, the, those who try to, uh, uh, you know, build a chronology around the stories and who get really fixated on uh, who, where was Watson here? What was Holmes doing there? Why is this clothes important? You know, what's the significance of this type of tobacco? You know, all these things that people spend uh, academic research hours on, not just leisurely research hours, you know, where people dedicate their careers to this type of stuff. It's... Um, it's really remarkable. And of course, I know the Trekkies exist and the Star Wars nuts exist and everybody, you know, every, every popular trend has got its uh, it's got its following. But the, I tell you, the Sherlockians, man, they're a different breed altogether from from what I've discovered. They learn, they've been around so long that they're not just like a cult like status. They're almost like uh, like like almost like a Freemasonry almost with them. Yeah, yeah, that's not a bad way of looking at it, actually. And they all want to attack each other and be right. And, like, they find the silliest justifications for things. And some of them are just so fatuous as, well, I, to my mind, uh, you know. But I'm not a, con a convert, so 
Anyway, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into if, it. If you excuse the uh, the com the um the slant the, the slander or possible slander, they're one they're one big redheaded league. <laughs> no po- no slander, man. I like Jabez Wilson. No <laughs> no slander at all. In a different well, world, well, I, I could have been Jabez. I, I think the name Jabez is pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, Sounds like a character cool. from Dune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it does. Kind of eaten by a sandworm. You by sandworm. Anyway, look, pal, we got a great show lined up today. That's a little bit of info on the Pensnay. Uh, we got some music, we got some laughs, we got some good research here today, and of course, our opinions. Let's get straight to it. Plot summary this bitch up. It was a dark and stormy night. Oh, God. Grade 9 English story assignment coming back to haunt me. <laughs> Watson is delving into some medical journals, whilst Holmes is fiddling around with the 15th century Italian palimpsest a.k.a. my Tuesday night. But there's a knocking on the door, but it is not the Wolfman, or at least not yet, anyway. It's Stanley Hopkins of Scotland Yard, Holmes's former erstwhile protege. He puts forward the unfortunate case of Willoughby Smith, unfortunate because his name is Willoughby, and double unfortunate (laughs) because he's dead. Smith was the third still standing, well, not anymore, secretary to Professor Corum of Yoxley Place near Chatham in Kentshire. I don't know where that is. The hopeful young academic assisted the professor with his memoirs, but this came to a halt with a single slash of a wax sealing knife to the neck. Poor Will, I refuse to call him by his given name as he is not a miniature kangaroo, bled out on the floor of Coram's study. Scotland Yard got to make those clearances, so Hopkins has a deal with the body at Yoxley Place. Hopkins, not the primordial Sherlockian ooze that Holmes was hoping for, is adrift as he can find no motive for the dastardly deed. What's more is that is that it was the maid, Miss Susan Tarleton, who found Smith with his Columbia necktie in the last throes of his life, believing that a pitcher of water would bring him back from the brink. It didn't. She douses his forehead only to garner a consummately cliched grasp and gasp. His last words rattle out. The press for the professor. It was she. Sorry, that was a terrible death rattle. I apologize. This probably okay. followed by a rolling back of the eyes and lolling out of the tongue. Oh, and oh, and he grasped, oh, grasped in the dead man's hand, right hand, is the only clue. A golden, God darn it, points nay, <laughs> one of those fancy nose-pinching spectacles that frilly frou-frou people in old movies go see operas with and say, my word, or I never, and then laughter ensues. So something <laughs> usually involved with Rodney Dangerfield. Pretty incisive and accurate, providing for... <laughs> Points they were, don't you think? I do. Yeah, well, mine shrinks in comparison to the profile that Sherlock divulges to Hopkins and Lestrade. Uh, Hopkins, or a.k.a. Lestrade, having wore the pince-nez for only like 40 seconds. In his simplicity itself, the calculating machine ejaculates. See, Arthur Conan Doyle? I can use that word in a sentence without giggling like a Sailor Moon character. A ridiculously accurate and detailed portrait of the suspect is what is given to us. And just as an aside, truth is, I don't think the word ejaculate even appears in this story, but Conan Doyle has used it more than once before. Yeah, so he, he likes it. To, he does like it. Yeah, so let me come to the conclusion, pun intended, pun intended, that it is simplicity itself pushes the TPQ, that's throat punch quotient, for Sherlock to stratospheric heights. Needless to say, Holmes suggests it belongs to a well-dressed, refined, older woman, blah, blah, blah. Good for you, Sherlock. You know what you're doing there. With the facts of the case now presented by this once prospective adopted offspring, but Holmes mentally places Hopkins on the Lestrade list of of, of 
of more cops that he has to work for and yet agrees to help poor Hopkins with his case. Oh, and Watson can come too, I guess. He likes Hopkins, like, though. He does like Hopkins. Yeah, we've I don't met him a couple times before, and he, yeah, he's, I'm he's kind a of, good guy. Yeah, I'm kind of stretching. Um, this is just one little bit of an aside here. I'm kind of stretching that. I think there was an attempt. I think in one of the stories. I recall. I, I recall. I, I don't remember this at this instance what story it was where you, you, he was kind of molding Hopkins into his own like uh, uh, mini Sherlock within Scotland Yard, you know, and maybe he wanted to spread the infection throughout of logic. And uh, mm. but I find that they portray Hopkins overall as kind of. Uh, a more efficient kind of officer and he's more observant uh, than say like Lestrade and whatnot, like his uh, superiors and not really a, a political, like on a political career, but he just wants to solve cases and stuff. And I like that zeal to Hopkins. So that kind of makes him interesting. He comes in the middle of the night, you know, in the rain and stuff to, at the door. And I, 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 I like his moxie. So um, I'm wondering because we're going into the night in the eight, we're going into the early 20th century now where you're seeing a lot of, you know, where the, you know, London is burgeoning. It's a huge city. You got New York, you got New York uh, and other world cities having these huge metropolitan police departments being founded there. Now, I wonder if there's some kind of popular um, zeitgeist going through these novels now, with Arthur Conan, Arthur Conan Doyle feeling maybe, you know, we should honor the police officer who has a deal with the growing crime that, that's appearing in, in, in these modern c- cities. So maybe he doesn't want to portray them like oafs anymore. What do you think? I think I'll, I'll let you I table think, that. And, yeah, let's uh, let's table it until we get to the end of the second stain. And if we remember, we can come back to it because that's where we see Lestrade and we get a bit of a, a contrast, perhaps. Yes. So embarking from the nexus of city and country, that is Charing Cross Station, our dynamic duo with Hopkins coming up in the rear, braid the terrible elements to train it to Yoxley Place. Here at their destination homes and Watson unknowingly find themselves in a Tolstoy novel. Before you can say Anna Karenina, details of the base of the case, sorry, emerge as the crime is examined. Crime scene is examined. Sorry, folks. Mrs. Marker, the housekeeper, is interviewed by Holmes, along with Miss Tarleton and the professor himself. By the way, the professor is an innocuous one, might say smug son of a bitch that gets himself on Holmes's crime radar due to the only room the culprit could have escaped to, the garden path beginning from beginning from the study door offered no evidence of escape on the pathway or in the grass was the, was Professor Quorum's bedchambers. The professor smokes fancy Egyptian cigarettes and like a cat playing with his prey offers Holmes a cigarette. But there are mice and there are men and Holmes is a bloodhound, not a kitten, not a mouse. So no persuasive evil charm is going to stray the master of deduction from his path. Holmes takes the bait and then becomes the angler happily puffing away on the Jippo cigarette while Quorum plays hard to get. Holmes then unleashes a fraction of the charm he used on his would-be fiancé, remember that, to coax as much information from Mrs. Marker as possible, including the tidbit that the professor, while an invalid and not in the best of health, has been putting away a lot of food. So have you figured it out yet, dear readers? Neither have I, but we can bet Holmes has. Reeling in his catch, Sherlock returns to Quorum's bedchamber and revealing some neat trick and with cigarette ash to find footsteps near a bookshelf, a hidden door is revealed in the professor's chambers. Out, out emerges Anna, the estranged wife of Professor Quorum, and the accidental murderer of Willoughby. I mean, Will Smith. Wait, maybe I'll stay with Willoughby. Turns out the Quorums are Russian, part of a pre-Bolshevik group called the Brotherhood. A nasty creature, the prof chose his well-being over that of his wife and friends, riding them out before the hammer came down upon them. Anna and her friends ended up in a Siberian labor camp. Some things never change, including Alexis, seemingly her replacement for Quorum. Can you blame her? 
released from her servitude, Anna requires documents to free Alexis, but those papers are in the hands of, the, of her deadbeat husband. Naturally, she went to retrieve them any way she could, but running into Will Smith, ugh, Willoughby Smith did, and fighting him off with a wax sealing knife wasn't in the offing, or it was in Smith's case. When Smith breathed his last, Anna heard Miss Tarleton coming and had no recourse but to head for the study face-to-face with her betrayer. Anna confesses all this, but before Hopkins can clap in her in irons, she pulls a Socrates and swallows a vial of poison. Yep, this actually happened. At least it wasn't brain fever. Or was it? Case closed. Or it will be when Holmes resolves to go to the Russian embassy. Perhaps this is ACD hinting at the notion of freeing Alexis and sending a massive karma train for the professor in the form of czarist officials. Maybe. But we'll never know. Das Vidanya. Mm, nice work. Have you, seen, you. have you seen the, uh, the Jeremy Brett uh, one, of, one of this adaptation? You should check it out. It's um, it's rather interesting. There's a there's a guy from the resistance or the, you know from the Russia basically yeah from the Brotherhood who, um, who who basically tracks him down right who tracks down Corum and and kind of drifts around the property and jumps kind of like like there's a shot at the end right where Holmes is kind of left and uh, yeah like you said it's kind of ambiguous there at the end and then. Holmes has left, but there's a shot like like we got an octopus. You remember you remember the guy above the the octopus bed with the yo-yo, right? The yeah, yo-yo yeah. saw who just like saw us down through the mattress. Well, in in this episode adaptation, Poor he, BJ. he just basically takes like a huge lunge right from the top of like I don't even know he's on a balustrade or something, and he lands on on the bed of the professor, and he just lays into him, and that's where it ends. <laughs> does, does he get does he get like an, does he get an octopus in the face? Well, <laughs> no, he doesn't, but he does die. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, good, yeah, good work. Okay, so the golden pince-nez. Um, pince-nez. Mm-hmm. Pince-nez. Uh, it, it's interesting, isn't it? This one, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'll just put it out there right now. This was not my favorite story. No, not mine either. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. It was kind of just like there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to me, it also has a forced. Uh, exotic premise to it obviously kind of um trying to tap into the tolstoy excitement i guess of the early 20th century i I wonder is it is it forced because holmes or because doyle relies on that backstory to be the info drop surprise reveal it all or is it forced for other reasons like i guess what what i'm trying to say in another way is does it feel forced because this russian idea is is kind of uh, sold to us as the big reveal or yeah. are there other things that you, you, you felt made it forced? I think it's forced or maybe ham fist would be a better term because I, I just found that there wasn't enough setup in the story to give the clue that this was leading to something kind of Russian. I just couldn't find those breadcrumbs that would lead me to that conclusion in the end. I just kind of, kind of seems like, all right then. Okay. I guess she's a former Russian uh, person. I wouldn't, you know, I never would have put that together, you know, like mm-hmm. it's just, Former Russian re- revolutionary, what, what what have you? Yeah. yeah, we do get some nice nice writing at the beginning of this, though. Uh, again, like we've seen in the past, whenever there's a storm at work, I always pay a little bit of attention uh, to see if there's going to be anything symbolic. Like, is the storm a manifestation, you know, of something that we're supposed to see, some turmoil somewhere else? And there's a bit of nice man versus nature writing here at the beginning. I'll just uh, share share a little bit from Watson's um, observation. Outside, the wind howled down Baker Street while the rain beat fiercely against the windows. It was strange there in the very depths of the town, with the, 
with ten miles of man's handiwork on every side of us, to feel still the iron grip of nature, and to be conscious that to the huge elemental forces, all London was no more than the mobile <clears throat> than the molehill that dots the fields. I kind of like that. But, yeah. I like, yeah, that whole thing with the molehills. I recall, I recall that line. Mm. That was really interesting. It's almost like he has, he's having an aerial view of London in a strange kind of way that how could he have done that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you think of all this research that Arthur Conan Doyle was going probably into now about fairies and whatnot, or he really got into the later life. And I'm wondering, like, did he, like, go to the astral plane or something and, like, Doctor Strange, like, hover over, you know, like, Potentially. the city of London and check out all of its workings and see where it was so he can write his books better? I don't know. Well, I reckon he has a good understanding of where he is geographically. True, true. Um, did you sense in the opening frames of this story, uh, particularly in comparison to The Three Students, which was one of the, epi- uh, one of the uh, shows, oh, God, one of the book stories, come on, Scott, too early to be fucking up. One of the uh, the early ones that we looked at last episode. Do you find that he, Holmes, is a little bit nicer to Watson here? I think he's just, Watson's there and he's his friend. And it's, there's kind of like a little kind of bromance going on there. But, you know, just a bunch of guys hanging out, reading and stuff quietly and in the storm and stuff. And people find that kind of a tempestuous, a tempestuous kind of imagery. And to me, I found it kind of like, uh, just sitting, you know, it's raining. You're, you're, it's raining in the evening. You don't have to go out anywhere. You get to read, and I don't know. That's a relaxing evening, if you ask me. Hmm. Maybe, but uh, okay. Perhaps uh, I'm not framing I, I, my I question like the idea properly. Of being like in the eye of the storm, you know, when everything's going around and you're mm-hmm. comfortable in the middle. I kind of like that feeling. The shelf, that that security of shelter and everything. Yes, and that's definitely conveyed here for us. But I guess what I was trying to get at is. In the three students, Holmes Which is quite rude. He's quite rude to Watson. He tells him that, "Oh, Watson, you won't be needed on this one. It's it's about mental acuity. It's not about strength. It's not about oh yes. you know, brawn." Like I find here, he's a little bit nicer. For example, um, <clears throat> just after a line, I'll, I'll start here. What can he want? This is um, a cab coming up against the the uh, the curb. What can he want? I ejaculated as the man stepped out of it. Hey, it wasn't the book after all. It was, after yeah. all. Want. He wants us. And we, my poor Watson, want overcoats and cravats and galoshes and every aid that man ever intended to fight the weather. Wait a bit, though. There's the cab off again. Oh, there's hope yet. He'd have it kept He'd have kept it if he wanted us to come. Run down, my, my dear fellow, and open the door, for all virtuous folk have been long in bed. It's, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, he's saying nice things to him after just kind of being... He, Come on, I mean, surely you remember Josh. Holmes was a bit of a dick the past two stories. I'm wondering if Doyle recognized that in his writing. It's like, yeah, maybe I got to do a little friendship here. Probably, yeah. And he was having a, and he was having a good evening, you know, and uh, he was enjoying his friend's company. And and now he, you know, while he was enjoying that, at the same time, he goes, oh, oh, look, a case. This 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 could this this could could be interesting. So you know, I I, I like his um his attitude here and his outlook on, on things with uh you know, with what he's doing and also uh, in terms of what he's doing with Watson. So I agree with you. Cool. Well, it's Hopkins, of course, who's in the cab. And uh, let's let's just move from here and into the narrative a bit more. So Hopkins, as you said in your plot summary quite nicely, tells the story of this 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 murder and and basically asks Holmes and Watson to come along down to Kent uh, Chatham, right? Seven miles from Chatham Chatham and Kent to uh, Yoxley Old Place. And that's where that's where things started. I mean, the move into the country. What do you think of that? Anything? Nothing. 
it was pretty quick, to be honest with you. Hmm. So, in yeah, well, yeah, it was, but like, like are you it, talking about like just like the shifting from the city to yeah, yeah, to the country to the country? Uh, so, like, I mean, it was an abrupt kind of shift uh, in a way, but we went from going, you know, from this middle class sort of um, uh, situation to, you know, to like this uh, grand, you know, to, to like this grand estate, you know, um, where this invalid professor is 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 living, you know, uh, with all this with all this territory, all this grounds, all these grounds around him, and you know, he's just being pushed around in his garden and and whatnot. Uh, uh, I, I believe I'm going into some kind of direction where I really don't know. I I I I, I will confess that I, <laughs> I don't quite. I don't. I'm not arriving at what you're getting at. Okay, that's fine. Uh, let's forget it then. What about a bath chair? <laughs> what, what what did you learn anything about a bath chair? Because I did. No. I yeah I noticed it was called a bath chair. I guess I assumed that maybe it was it was like something that like for that that nurses would push patients around in. That's what I guessed at. I never really researched it. I was yeah, hoping you, actually your compendium would uh, help you with that. Yeah, you're pretty close. Uh, it was used to transport Victorian ladies and invalids. Three wheels, two under the chair itself, and one under the footrest. So think oh. like a, a wheelchair, but a little different in its formation. But yeah, Those it was things. indeed used uh, in you know pushing people around. And this is what the professor gets. You know, he gets himself a little, uh, you know, a little steward, I guess, that uh, drives him about. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm visualizing um, Sir Charles Linden, you know, in, in in Barry Linden being pushed around by the Countess, you know, around around that spa, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, so yeah, they get to Yoxley Old Place. They start looking at the scene of the crime. Anything you want to talk about here? The the scene of the crime. Yeah, when they get well, to I mean, Yoxley Old Place, it's a, it's pretty well defined. Uh, just for just just for going into what we're we're seem like we're discussing the the plot summary here. Are, are we doing like the the pipes are, are we going to look at the principles first or are we going to look at the investigation okay sure yeah let's light the pipes then uh, sorry I was just thinking that you you might have wanted to say a little something about the, the environment of the crime scene before we did that but that's cool we'll like well pipes. The, I was gonna cover that in the environments perfect let's do it uh, <laughs> lighten the pipes what kind of pipe are you on today buddy I'm gonna go for this uh, mahogany pipe mahogany pipe mahogany why? Why mahogany? The other choice is oak, and I'm just not in an oaky mood. Okay, right on. Here you go. Lighten them up. Mahogany style. Okay, pipes are lit. Okay. Just, just, just to go back, I, I, yeah, the crime scene was definitely. I liked how the crime scene was set up in this story. I, I could visualize it. It was almost like you're watching like a stage play, and how everything was all laid out uh, in terms of, and you, you had a clear idea of where people are went to, um, what the layout of the house was like, um, where each person was at the time of the crime, and how they reached how they reached the crime scene and how the body was laid out and how Holmes was able to walk around and you could visualize that with Arthur Conan Doyle's writing. So I think that the, well. yeah, the map was also helpful too, but 
I was kind of I used the map as like I glanced at it, but I was also using I was I was kind of trying to get from the writing a more of a sense of the atmosphere from that, you know. Cool, no problem. <clears throat> okay, so principles. What do you think of them? I have to say, I really liked Holmes in this story. Um, I, I, I recall you mentioning uh, about him being really friendly with Watson at the beginning, and I caught that. I liked that, as I mentioned, that kind of like the bonding that they were having, just like, you know, just in quiet, rainy evening, a rainy evening and uh, from the storm, and they're just in there, re- you know, reading silently to themselves and, and uh, doing their own thing, but, you know, but they're also willing to jump onto the next big case that comes, that, that comes up there. And I like Holmes' Holmes' willingness, uh, you know, to to go to go right to it, and bringing Watson along with him. I loved Holmes at the crime scene, uh, how he looked over everything, and how he used his charm on 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 the on Mrs. Marker uh, to get the information he was looking for. How he was playing that cat and mouse game with the professor when he knew something was up automatically, you know, with those with the cigarettes and um, just uh, Holmes was just at the top of his game here. I know I say that I say that like several times, but I think he really was and. Their writing uh, showed that, um, in particular. Um, do you agree with that? I agree that Holmes is very good. The note that I've made uh, is Holmes very good. Watson who? Yeah, well, that's what I said. Watson come along, I yeah. guess, right? Like Watson yeah. did absolutely nothing in this story. He gives Abs- us a bit. Of, he gives us a bit of exposition, uh, which is nice to read. <laughs> Um, I particularly like the moment where a third-person uh, narrator could do that. <laughs> yes, of course. Well, of course, and we've said that many times before. But I particularly like the the moment where they're driving to Kent, which is why I was asking if if you like the sort of transition scene, because um, from Watson's point of view, he, he he's looking as they cross the river, and he uh, he looks at the Thames and the banks and whatnot, and he remembers the uh, the moment with the Andaman Islander. Oh and yes, so, uh, Tong, yes Tong, Tonga gets a shout out. A shout out. Yeah, Conga. Yeah, this was the first story that I read. So yeah, I just I guess for that like I, that that just got lost to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'll, uh, read, I'll just read that little bit out because yeah, it, is, do that. it is it is Watson remembering something. I don't know if fondness is the right word, but uh, the gale had blown itself out the next day. But it was a bitter morning when we started upon our journey. We saw the cold winter rise, oh, so, the cold winter sun. Sorry, rise over the dreary marshes of the Thames and the long sullen reaches of the river, which I shall ever associate with our pursuit of the Andaman Islander in the earlier days of our career. Oh, and yeah. That, of course, is a reference to the police boat pursuit of the blow of the blowgun-wielding pygmy Tonga. And, yeah, uh, that's, you know, that's right. No, that, that, that definitely evokes, you know, a, a kind of a nostalgia. And also it's a good testament to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's world-building. Yeah, and I like that part of it. I like the fact that, like, I, I like those things, you know, hearkening back to what's happened before. Um, that's good. The continuity. I know, yeah, and I know that other people, like I was saying a few minutes ago, like the Sherlockians and the scholars, like they really make a lot of that stuff. I, I don't. I, I'm just glad to see exactly what you're saying, the world building, that sometimes he does don his cap to what he's done in the past because while not every one of these hits the target, he's created a wonderful set of characters that he should come back to and he should, you know, create some longevity with. Absolutely. And uh, speaking upon that point, um I found the, what I find interesting is this shift from Lestrade to Hopkins in these last couple of stories here. Yeah. And that's kind of the one thing that kind of took me out of that world building thing is, I don't know, like I just expected Lestrade to be at the door. It just, just seems more right, you know? Hopkins is, is cool and all, but I don't know. It's just it's not the same without Lestrade all the time, in my opinion. Well, okay. 
I kind of agree with you, but I kind of don't at the same time. I think what Doyle's trying to do, and I mean, I'm I'm concurrently reading uh, Andrew Lykes's uh, autobiography of Conan Doyle, and so I'm getting quite a lot out of this. But uh, as we're going to see with the second stain, Doyle is trying to create characters that are representative of the time. And so while there's changes going on at Scotland Yard in the time of his writing, I think he's trying to bring some of those changes in to make the world more contemporary for the readership. For example, when we get the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary in the second stain, we've got a Chamberlain uh, cookie cutter type thing, a young Chamberlain. And so there's stuff going on that I think he's deliberately doing. I also think that Hopkins is what Lestrade isn't. Um, that there's an antagonism between Holmes and Lestrade because Lestrade is a snooty, always looking for the advantage. He softens in some places, and that's great to see because he's a round character in that way. But yes. Hopkins is much more the... I'm not going to say he's doting, but he's not as proud. Amenable. He's not as arrogant. Yeah, that's right. He wants to use Holmes and learn from him. And I like that Doyle gives Holmes... A police inspector or a detective that is younger and can be kind of not groomed certainly in his fashion but can at least be favored in a way that he's not needing to compete and pull the wool over the eyes of Lestrade and I think the evolution of the Hopkins character is coming at a time when Doyle realizes he's running thin on plots so he needs to do something to you know keep a keep a decent train track while giving readers something a little different you know what I mean that's true, yeah. When you, and when you have like an efficient investigator like Hopkins come in with a come in with a case for Holmes to consult on, um, it put, it brings you right into the story right away. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and they don't lose the friendship, or and it is a friendship, I think, ultimately with Lestrade. It, it doesn't lose that, uh, but bringing Hopkins in is good because it it for me at least shows that Holmes isn't a one trick pony, and that his reputation within the um, the CDI or the CID, sorry, is is good and it's variable and it's not just um, it's not just a narrative function for yes. story after story after story. There's a little bit of variation there and I and I appreciate that. So Me too. Yeah. anyway, I, I went four for the principles because while Holmes is very good and he's fun to follow, uh, Watson doesn't do very much but observe. No. And we've seen and said that before with these re- recent stories. But I went four out of five. I gave four out of five as well. I I, want to add too is that I liked Holmes's sense of justice in in this story, and I liked I liked how he was he how he was playing that game with the professor, like how he comes back in with the cigarettes again and goes for this, and they they find the cigarettes fall to the floor, and then the professor sneers because he knows Holmes is up to something, and then the ashes on the on the floor to lead to the showing the foot the footsteps, you know, where Anna came out from the hidden door. And uh, I just like that whole part of him. him. He was enjoying his, you know, his, he was relishing and enjoying the, the cases that he was on. He wasn't just analyzing it like in a, in a, I guess, an academic kind of way. It seems to me that he was just on all fours in this, um, in this, in this particular tale. And I liked his sense of justice, how, you know, as soon as um, Anna, Anna kills herself and, he wants to go to the Russian embassy, you know, to make sure that at least, you know, she can, they can possibly free Alexis or even, you know, send the czarist police officials over to take out uh, Quorum, you know, because mm-hmm. that would probably be somewhat um, cathartic for him for this case. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, Interesting <clears throat> that the that the Grenada series uh, 
pr- provides a cathartic end for the professor as well. Yeah, it does. It really does. Um, it, it it wasn't a great adaptation, though, I didn't think. I wasn't really uh, in, that enthralled by it. But I'll tell you what I will pick up on what you said there about the cigarettes. And I guess this leads us into our investigation because it's such a big part of how Holmes understands that there's somebody there in the hidden cupboard, right? Um, I I said that, okay, well, first of all, overall for investigation, interesting, but... Uh, for me, it would have been nice for some of the Russian side of things to be leaked out or hinted at. So some yes, some, some crack yes. in the in the professor's veneer, you know, or or his selection of tobacco. Like the big info drop at the end made me feel like this was a story that was waiting to be told in a different genre. But you know, we've <laughs> we've already said that anyway. I, I want to pick up on something here because I've got one note on cigarettes themselves and their importance in this story. And this, is, I think, is a pretty valuable detailed note about um, Ionides of Alexandria, which is the provider of these cigarettes, and the unsavory reputation of that particular uh, merchant, which kind of suggests a lot, I think, to contemporary readers about this professor's character, and which probably gave readers at the time who knew something about uh, Ionides of Alexandria, probably gave them some foreshadowing or insight or hint that this professor was more than meets the eye. So if you'll indulge me for a minute, this will be all I'll say on investigation, but I really want to share this this point. The cigarette manufacturer, Ionides and Company, was located at 3 Swallow Street off Regent Street in London. The Alexandria reference may be to the blend of tobacco, which might have been sweetened with molasses, as it is smoked in Egyptian hookahs. Or perhaps the professor did have a source in Alexandria, and the Ionides name is merely a coincidence. Cigarettes, as opposed to pipes, cigars, or snuff, were a relatively new phenomenon in the West, having been introduced in England only within the previous 30 years. Uh, We then have a little bit talking about this book. Uh, In his book, The Victorians, historian A.N. Wilson traces England's cigarette craze to the Crimean War, during which Scotsman Robert Peacock Glogged, whose exact involvement in the war is unknown, witnessed Turks and Russians smoking them. He brought the curiosity back to London with him, selling rolled strawberry-colored paper filled with Latakia tobacco. Others caught on, and by the early 1860s, there were a number of shops in London hawking Turkish cigarettes. Meanwhile, Gloeg was experiencing considerable entrepreneurial success, having expanded operations to six houses and founded a factory in Walworth. After the health effects of tobacco were not... Although the health effects of tobacco were not well known in the 19th century as they are today, many physicians did recognize that there were risks associated with smoking. Cigarettes, lacking the drying room sophistication of pipes and cigars, came in for particular scorn, and the habit tended to be condemned as unsavory and low. Surgeon Arthur E.J. Longhurst blamed cigarettes for having brought down the Ottoman Empire, saying, quote, We may also take warning from the history of another nation, who some few centuries ago were the terror of Christendom, but who since then, having become more addicted to tobacco smoking than any of the European nations, are now the lazy and lethargic Turks held in contempt by all civilized communities. But once Glog had gotten the wheels rolling, there was no stopping this momentum. England was hooked on this inexpensive new addiction. The cigarette's biggest breakthrough came in 1883 when tobacconists W.D. and H.O. Wills bought their first Bonsac machine an American invention that could manufacture 200 cigarettes per minute. Between 1816 and 1900, Wilson writes, Britain became a smoking nation. Smoking, once banned from clubs and railway cars, became ubiquitous. Cigarettes were far more affordable than pipes or cigars, particularly after the introduction of penny cigarettes in the 1880s, and thus the vice of the Russians and Turks became the vice of the British working class. 
Holmes himself was, of course, an inveterate smoker of tobacco in all forms. Although Holmes is most often associated with pipes in his public image and his storage of cigars in the coal scuttle is well known, see the Musgrave ritual, the, there are ample records of the variety of his smoking habit. J. Finley Christ, in Keeping Score on Sherlock Holmes, from his Flashes by Fanlight, notes 29 tales in which Holmes smokes only pipes, five only cigarettes, and three cigars. Three tales mention pipe and cigars, two pipe and cigarettes, and two others, cigars and cigarettes. In The Hound of the Baskervilles, he indulges in all three. Only in 12 tales does he refrain from smoking altogether. So, uh, a long note, I know, but I thought, given the importance of cigarettes in the detection of um, Anna, and then also the atmosphere of the professor's room when Holmes walks into it, uh, I thought this was kind of worth sharing. And a little bit of history there, you know? Why not, once in a while? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I appreciate that. And uh, it definitely um, adds some flavor to, 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 to the investigation part of it. Um, overall, I gave the investigation 3.5. So did I. I, yeah... I, I I didn't mind the twist, and I, I kind of and uh, I found the professor. Uh, you know, he was a he wasn't a middling villain, but he wasn't great. But I I I, I liked him as a villain, and uh, there was some kind of like as I said that innocuous smugness about him uh, that you know there was something you just didn't like about him. You know, and it's interesting you mentioned the you know the Crimean War. If you recall, Mortar, um the gardener at um, that that at that estate is Crimean. So I guess you're referring to like you know Ukrainian essentially, um, but it's interesting that that that, that was kind of I guess that maybe that was a Crimean that was their first hint towards Russia perhaps, but the gardener wasn't even involved in 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 the um, uh, the, the villainy of the story I suppose. That's a, that's interesting. Yeah, he could have been red herring. Maybe kind of like a really lazy red herring that he put in there perhaps. Well, I can't help but wonder, like I'm saying, how. How many red herrings are we missing? Like, how much richness is there in these stories that maybe we're not getting because we're distanced by a hundred and you know twenty years or something? That is definitely true because a lot of readers in London, even in America, even would probably know about those cigarettes and what they, you know, and what cigarettes were to society at that time period, right? Mm -hmm. So, so have those kind of those low those low associations, perhaps. Um, gives them a light on the story that we would not have in our, in our you know, yeah. in our modern times. Well, particularly their connection to the East, right? If that was a hint to the Russian involvement, who knows? Yeah, that's definitely true. That's a good point as well. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I found the investigation, you know, like, it, it, I like, I like the, the game he played with the professor and the, and the cigarette ash and, and, uh, and uh, how he was able to, you know, to ascertain where, you know, Anna could have been hiding and, and whatnot. And, uh, I like Willow B. Smith as kind of a, as a sad victim. You know, he felt sorry for the guy, and mm -hmm. he's and uh, I, I think it presented his story in a very in a very you know well to understand manner. But I just didn't find it compelling until the end. And I found it's like okay, well, this is a you know beginning given how the how you know how how what what's the word how um, exciting the reveal is. You would think that the that it would build up to that, you know, the build up to that would be just as exciting. But I just didn't get that from that from from this story. Do you think, building on something you said a few moments ago, do you think that if she hadn't poisoned herself, do you think that Anna would have been set free by Holmes, or do you think that he would not have been able to overlook Willoughby Smith's death? 
I don't think Hopkins would have been able to over to uh, o- overlook it. Oh, very good. I forgot Hopkins was very much involved in this side of things. Yeah, you're good. Good point, uh, right? She had like to a, die a, then, didn't she? Because that that's that kind of solves that conflict then that may have existed between Holmes's moral side. Because I think he probably would have wanted yeah. her to to get her justice. Yes, this isn't some Australian uh, lass, uh, no. defiant Australian lass that, that we'll soon encounter in another story. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay, let, let's keep moving then. Yeah, I went 3.5, you went 3.5. In terms of perpetrators, uh, Coram was interesting, or Sergius the traitor, if you will. Uh, yes. A pretty intriguing figure, you know, overall. His cigarette addiction revealed uh, a pretty clear, I felt, but still effective, nervousness and anxiety in his personality which I guess itself was kind of representative, wasn't it, of kind of holding a guilty secret. Um, yes. He, it, it could have been, he could I like have been that they actually had guilt about it, though. That's what I liked about his character. He, I feel like he did have guilt about it. He didn't rat out Anna in his room, because I know, well, obviously it could lead to some, to him involving him as well. But at the same time, I think he feels sorry for what he did, and he feels sorry for her. Because when, when she's telling his story, he keeps going like, Oh, Anna. Oh, Anna. You know what I mean? You, he, yeah, you're I so know. noble, Anna. That's you know interesting. What I mean? like, I, it's all coming back to him, you know, yeah. in many ways. And I didn't he's a bit of a coward. Way. I didn't he's read it that He's a bit of a coward. Way. Yeah. I got it different to that. Like, I read it a little different. Like, you remember, uh, what's his name? Uh, Wayne Newton in License to Kill. You know, when he when someone's finally got, he calls his number out. Yeah, you're just a crooked televangelist. He's like, oh, God bless you. Like, God that, bless you. That's bless your how, heart. That's kind of, yeah. That's kind of how I read it, like. Anna was there, and he's like, oh, well, okay, yeah, okay, hands up. Oh, Anna, well done, you got me. I, I didn't really think that it was pathos. I didn't think there was there was real, like, emotional uh, reclamation going on there. But, yeah, we just saw it a little differently. It didn't, it didn't really change my mark on him either way. He was interesting, but he was very singular. And it would have been neat to have seen a little bit more of his Russian side crack through, you know, instead of just being a professor who had a... Uh, you know, this kind of enigmatic professor. So I I wanted to go to a four, but I didn't. I went 3.5. Yeah, I was 3.5 as well. And I, I think I wanted to, I wanted Corm to be a little bit better because I had a feeling halfway through that this was the guy and I wanted to see what his backstory was and what and, and, and how he was connected. That kind of what, that's what intrigued me to continue reading the story is to see why Willoughby Smith died because of this guy. Like he obviously died because of Willoughby Smith and, uh, because of Professor Quorum. And it's I think it's how, like you mentioned, how that Goodreads uh, quote mentioned how, you know, this tragedy, this tragedy led to two innocent lives being killed, you know, being snuffed. You have Willoughby Smith and you have Anna herself, too, mm-hmm. um, who kills um, Willoughby Smith, admittedly, in self-defense. Uh, I think that's a little gray, grayer. I think that could be some, you know, some Russian passion c- coming out there. Uh, but I, I, I went 3.5 because I just found there wasn't enough fleshing out for Quorum in the end, especially, and the reveal is so ham-fisted that you just can't really deal in anything but archety- archetypes, you know, um, in, in, in this particular case. Okay, what about environment? And, and I include Anna with that 3.5 as well. Fair enough, yeah, because she is in her way a perpetrator. Of course, she did cause Willoughby Smith death. Yes, good point. I, I, I rated her more in my secondary, but that's okay. What would you say for environment? Let's just get through this one. I really like the I really like the environs, and I just remembered, you know, you when you recalled the the reference to the uh, the sign of four boat chase. 
uh, I, that trend, that trend, that 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 tr- tr- that transitional part uh, was 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 very well done. I liked the whole layout of the of the of the study, and then the room down below with the coconut matting, uh, and then you have you know his his his, his, his the bed chambers itself with like all the books everywhere and and that one place where you know where she was hiding and the the professor just sitting there you know in, in up in his bed you know uh just smoking cigarettes and it was just very uh evocative uh almost um Agatha Christie kind of um imagery so what'd you go for I went for four for environs, actually. All right, I was just a shade below you. I also went 3.5 for this component. I don't disagree with anything you said. I, in fact, agree and noted much of what you said. I just feel as though with the storm at the start, that was a little bit... Uh, <clears throat> it set me up for something that I didn't really get. Uh, I didn't... Mm-hmm. Like, I was hoping for more there. I Pathetic liked it. fallacy, but yeah, actually not. A little bit, yeah. The inner room and the cupboard were kind of exciting, but there really wasn't much else there. We did get the train ride over the Thames. Uh, the Swampland was mentioned. I liked that. But as for the room itself, apart from the smoke and its kind of oppressiveness, I didn't see much going on at Yoxley Old Place. The, I mean, the the rug obviously was... no was an indication to Holmes that this the, the perpetrator couldn't have actually left the property and so you know that that was good the way the map helped with it but yeah it, it you know it was pretty tight it was good 3.5 out of 5 I think is still fitting that's that's the thing like I, I think I put it over because of uh, um, the, the, the the storm Im- imagery and uh, the just how the, the study and and the study and how the professor's bed chambers were laid out. But you, I think about it more and more, and I'm still going to stay with my four. But 3.5 is very good because more and more of these cases, I've, I've noticed, like beginning, you know, even with like the Naval Treaty, we're losing the atmosphere of some of the earlier stories now, and we're getting kind of maps just laid out completely for the viewer. So, can you spot the clues? Mm-hmm. You, and you, you know what I mean? Like it's it's like these these breadcrumbs are, are no no longer subtle yeah, anymore. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, it, um, and, 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 even, and even if they're not subtle, the, the reveal at the end still makes them kind of pointless at the end anyways, because how would you have possibly have figured that out? Have you not written the story in some, in some of these cases? Yeah, that's very well said. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you couldn't, right? You simply couldn't. Yeah. As for the supporting cast, though, I like the, I like the colorful I would include Professor Quorum among them. I, 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 like, I enjoyed the cast of characters of this story. Um, I liked, uh, you know, Mrs. Uh, uh, marker and how Holmes, you know, she was like kind of uh, not. She was not immune to Holmes's charm, and and uh, she told her, the way the way that the way that Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, has her tell her story. Um, I just want to go, I just want to go to that in particular actually because I really liked it. Just a moment here. This is the maid, yeah. Uh, this is the housekeeper. I, the housekeeper if I'm not mistaken, because yeah. Mrs. Charlton is is the maid. Right, right. You are. One she, second. she she the one that breaks down the housekeeper. She doesn't break down per se. Just just a moment here. I've got it here. The Mrs. Marker's bit. The paragraphing of these these older stories, I find just sometimes it's hard to find what what you're looking for. I unlike modern books, I find. Yeah, you could just mark it in preparation. 
given her name is Marker, I guess that would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. But uh, just to break down what I was going to share, I just kind of just liked how the dialogue of her character came out in, in, in what she was saying. Um, I noticed it, Mr. Holmes, but you'll always find scratches around a keyhole. This is quite... This is quite. This is recent. Quite recent. See how the brass shines where it is cut. An old scratch would be the same color as the surface. Look at it through my lens. There is a varnish too, like earth on this, each side of a furrow. Is Mrs. Marker there? And then a sad-faced elderly woman came into the room. Did you dust his bureau yesterday morning? Yes, sir. Did you notice his scratch? No, sir. I did not. I am sure you did not, for a duster would have swept away these shreds of varnish. Who has the key of this bureau? The professor keeps it on, a, on his watch chain. Is it a simple key? No, sir. It is a Chubb's key. Very good, Mrs. Marker. You can go. And it's uh, it's just that that exchange to me that just kind of shows uh, you know her part, uh, her place in society at that time, and um, just it just seems like he's talking to a real person in that way who was who was who was who was in that station at, at life, and. There's there's nothing kind of uh, over dramatic about it or cliched about that presentation. That's what that's what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Just kind of stripped down and honest. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, I went for a four with my secondary characters. Uh, there were a lot of red herrings with the housing staff, but the professor's wife was interesting, even if she was sparsely used. And I, I you know, I went for a four because I felt like it was a little better than the other components. They should have done more with the Crimean gardener, in my in, in my opinion. They now that you like said a, it, I see. I see that. Yes, I do see that. Yeah, like because now he he could he could he could even be like a brotherhood member or something, right? <laughs> well, maybe maybe maybe, he maybe was. that's where the the Grenada show picked up that uh, trend and decided to play with it. Well, he is creeping around the garden, but I don't think he's a gardener. Okay, well he may, he might he might he might have been the gardener. So I think, he, who he knows? Anyway, what was your <laughs> score? What was your score for secondary? Uh three point five. You're at 3.5. Okay, pal. So you at 3.5. I think this gives us identical scores, actually, because I think we swapped four, three, but yep, this gives us identical scores. We're both at 18.5 for this story. And now, of course... Oh, sorry. No, I apologize. No, three was my score, not 3.5. Three for secondaries. Yes. Okay. Well, in that case, I liked it a half point more than you. That doesn't happen very often. (laughs) No, it doesn't, does it? Not really. It's but usually we're kind of yeah. It's more even. Okay, door number one or door number two, buddy. Door number one. Door number one. You have selected uh, the one and only Artie Shaw, one of the greatest band leaders of all time. And smoke gets in your eyes. I thought this was a good one for the setting <laughs> of our story. Very well. <laughs>
I think maybe we'll have to do a uh, a soundtrack album. You know, we'll we'll do both the podcast soundtrack album for Lighting the Pipes, containing all the tracks that we've used, and of course we'll have a B side album with all of the ones that haven't been selected. <laughs> I honestly thought you would choose like Lara's theme. To be honest, no, 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 nothing like that. I'm. Uh, I hadn't even thought about that, buddy. To be honest. Oh, I was more joking, but... <laughs> oh, right. Well, anyway, there you go. So that's the first story up and done and dusted, and we've got to make quicker progress to our other ones, but I know we will. We always do this. We always have kind of a slow start, uh, a kind of methodical start, and then we get into a rhythm, and we're going to hit a rhythm here, let me tell you, with the adventure of the missing three-quarter. Hit us up with some publication info. Published in the Strand in uh, August 1904. Uh, Goodreads uh, doesn't really have a lot of didn't have a lot of offerings on it to be honest with you but what I did glean was it's a so-so story different type of ending but just wasn't interesting enough vague sad ending but very good it was nice to see Watson worried about Holmes relapsing I mean that that's good sentiment yes but that's not a review but all the same that's right um, yeah. Good sentiment, but not a review. A good mystery with a sad ending, says the person with the avatar of, like, the guy from Supernatural in it. So, whatever. <laughs> can't really touch, can't really um, get much from those from those opinions. Whereas the good reads you got for the um, the, the, the points nay uh, definitely um, were more illuminating. If, if not... Were they? Were they really? <laughs> maybe they were more... They were more, they were, they were wordier, I guess you could say. Yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> we'll have that compromise. We will. So what's 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 happening with the missing three quarter? Um, uh, I, I I I take it this is the case of lost change. <laughs> yeah, the kid who's crying at the arcade. Yeah. Spider Man, uh, no. the, the Spider Man game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, losing your three quarters. No, no. Um, just to pick up on something you were saying there, this the manuscript of this story is held at the British Library, and it is the only case in the entire canon to involve amateur sports. Directly, I guess that, at least. I, I, I did notice that actually, and I, I, I was interested how you know varsity sports were was portrayed in the story. Well, I was trying to pay particular detail to that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't guess if it was like a college thing or if it was more like a, of a national sports team uh, well, university university team university okay so <clears throat> the adventure of the missing three quarter a gloomy what is a three quarter by the way oh all will be explained it's a position in rugby so so is, is this like kind of like the precursor to the modern foot quarterback of american football no 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 this is rug, rugby is its own game of course and right. uh, has its own positions and over here i've quite heavily exposed to it. It's a big game in Scotland and England, Wales, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, Canada has a good rugby team, particularly at sevens, and America is doing a lot with rugby. It's a growing game around the world, but it's a very um, it's a very uh, traditional game to be played at uh, college and university over here, particularly in England, the, you know, the equivalent Ivy League stuff, right? Right. Anyway... A gloomy February morning brings with it a terse, anxious telegram from a man named Overton, urging Holmes to please wait him. When the strapping Cyril Overton arrives, he explodes with apprehension over the sudden disappearance of his star backfielder, Godfrey Staunton. 
Overton and Staunton are both Cambridge boys and have an all-important derby versus Oxford tomorrow. It's not exactly being stood up at the altar, but Overton certainly acts like a buffooning groom. Unfortunately, right from the start, Doyle sloppily inserts some information that results in any weight of intrigue being lightened, if not removed entirely, from the client interview and takes us out of the action a little. A few pages into the story, we learn that there isn't much foul play here at all. He goes willingly away from his hotel room the night before a big game with another man he seems to know. Not exactly the tension of thumbless engineers or mafioso revenge that we've seen in the past. Shocked by Holmes's casual inability to recall or find in his articulated index any likeness or note about Godfrey Staunton, Overton manages to lure the great detective in somehow, presumably because he has, quote, a clear day and nothing better to do. That, in truth, is the only way I could see Sherlock go in for this caper, because his brain needs a fix, or he'll get right back onto the 7% solution. Taken this way, the adventure of the three-quarter is believable, a fix to feed his restlessness. Holmes and his pooch, Watson, follow Overton to Godfrey's abandoned room, where Sherlock interrogates the night porter. Staunton received and then replied to a telegram before disappearing. Holmes acquires the telegram, forms from the night before and studies the impression left by the pen effectively enough to discern some emergency in the words stand by us for god's sake written by the missing rugby star before holmes can get out to the telegram offices to track the message rich uncle pennybags oh i mean lord mount james arrives his lordship is staunton's uncle though the relations are cold LMJ is as close to a Dickensian scrooge as we've seen yet in this canon and suspicions are raised over his defensive attitude was Staunton looking for his uncle in the city? Was he set to inherit or try to swindle a fortune? Why is rich Uncle Mount James such a grump? These questions and more baffle the reader in their mediocrity. After mincing words with LMJ, Holmes languidly heads across to the office where, posing as a man who wrote a telegram yesterday with the words, For God's sake, yes, really, it is that pedestrian, he convinces the naive girl to show him the counterfoils long enough for him to see the addressee. I love now, that. On one hand, this is ridiculously easy, but on the other hand, at least, ACD offers one of his minor female characters an actual job. We don't see that very often. So, in the end, this scene is the okay. winner. Well, little Violet Hunter, the, the uh, nanny. Yeah, okay. But here she's working in, like, you know, properly with the public. Yeah, that's shacked up true. in a home somewhere. So, in the end, I guess this scene is a winner compared to most for its progressive representation of women in society. Woo! Sherlock tells Watson that it's time to go to Cambridge. Without explanation, upon arrival, he gets a cab to the home of Dr. Leslie Armstrong, who greets him in the same warm manner as Grumpy Drawer's LMJ. Though his defensiveness and aggressive fear of snooper-like Holmes, it becomes clear that Armstrong knows where Staunton is, but he shares nothing of the secret. And neither does Doyle share anything via Sherlock's suspicions. Instead of playing by his side, we're blindfolded from the evidence and tossed unwillingly into a chase-and-follow narrative where we can do little more than watch Holmes and respond to his inevitable, predictable revelations. The dynamic duo take a room out at the conveniently located inn just opposite Armstrong's office and basically do a lame job of spying on the doctor. Holmes follows his carriage on bicycle but gets deliberately led astray before enlisting the help of Pompey, the best of the local drag hounds. The three sleuths soon catch up with the carriage, thanks to Sherlock's earlier scenting of its wheels with aniseed, and they track it to a cottage in a field on the outskirts of Trumpington. Here, all is revealed as Holmes bursts in. Slouched over a recently deceased body of an attractive young woman is Godfrey Staunton himself, who, quote, never looked up until Holmes's hand was on his shoulder. 
the woman, the daughter of Staunton's London landlady, turned out to be Godfrey's secret wife, secret only to Armstrong, his close friend. Once Armstrong and Holmes shake hands and understand each other's noble intentions, it's revealed that Staunton and his wife were hiding their marriage from his uncle, Lord Mount James, who would almost certainly forbid the marriage to a woman of lower class and end the inheritance that was likely coming his way. Love or money? Well, both don't seem possible, and so once again we find good characters tied up in the troubled world of Victorian class values. Well, in a sick irony, now that his wife is dead, Staunton can get back to playing rugby and inheriting his fortune. Yippee! So, any liberation of any liberation of women from earlier in the story is fully and properly deceased here. Women, take your money and your sports. So much for that progressive telegram officer. No crime was committed, even though a sick joke feels played on true love somehow, and Holmes and Watson pass from the house of grief and into the pale sunlight of the winter day like some kind of social work cowboys. So, what do you get when you combine a missing rugby player, a rich uncle, and a suspicious doctor skulking about the Cambridgeshire back roads in his carriage? Bored. That's what I get. Well, okay, that's not entirely fair. Once Sherlock Holmes and Watson enter the plot, some interesting flavor does appear. But there's no escaping the reality of this story. In terms of significance, no crime is ever committed. The whole thing plays out like a game of hide-and-seek, with a few breadcrumbs and a cool sniffer dog scene that ex succeeds in exonerating Toby from the sign of four for his inadequacies. Overall, this story is about a missing Cambridge University rugby player and the desperate man-love that surrounds and follows his retrieval, and it doesn't do a lot for me. The tale is readable, and there are several features worth discussing, of course, but don't get your hopes up. This story ranks slightly, only slightly, above the adventure of the lady who misplaced her groceries and the case of the roadside assistance call in terms of literary interest. You're not going to bat 100% every time you step up to the plate, but with only slim exception, the return of Sherlock Holmes so far feels like a series of pinch hitters who can't really be bothered. Doyle, in truth, doesn't really seem interested in making the playoffs. <laughs> there you go. That's my take on it. Was that a summary or was that a scathing review? I, do you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just kind of went, went there and. Um, no, I, I, I get you. You got to find I, an angle sometimes to approach these summaries on, and sometimes when the story is that, uh, it speaks to me that way, you know. And so I get loquacious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just feel that. What, what, what else can you do but critic? But you know, put it towards the criticism of the piece itself. Mm-hmm. I. <laughs> yeah okay look i feel like we can go through this one quick i've got some interesting notes written down though i do have some interesting notes written down that i'd like to share with you um and maybe if i do that then we can launch into our pipes are, are you cool with that yeah we need we, i think we i think we need something we need, we need a flint and a spark to make the to, to, you know to get things going here okay there's a few notes here in the Klinger annotations that I would like to touch upon one of them has to do with Watson as a savior of Holmes okay uh, there are differing views that persist basically I'll just summarize it and then I'll share there are differing views that persist on first of all Holmes's drug dependency second of all Watson's actual usefulness in curing or weaning Holmes from cocaine a lot of scholars read Watson's words here in this story as a boast which kind of inflate his actual importance or his vanity, I guess, in, in, in an effort to feel like he had some advantage or some control, win, if you will, over Holmes because he's so terrible in other ways. Like, he's got nothing compared to Holmes, so he needs to say, you know, yes, I, I, I got him off that heroin. That's the one thing I did for him, right? Um, because that, that cocaine use maybe was never really all that serious, you know? No. I mean? And, and I, just, I just thought that 
it was interesting to pick up on one of the notes here from the annotations that go into that debate among Sherlockians in quite, uh, quite a bit of detail. Watson's concern <clears throat> here about Holmes' habit appears touching. Yet considering that Holmes is actually seen using cocaine in the accounts of only two cases, the sign of the four and a scandal in Bohemia, it's hard to describe the addiction as ever having jeopardized his career. Troubling as the habit was, Watson may be indulging in a bit of vanity here, trying to identify himself as Holmes's savior and the one person able to stop him from imminent relapse. <laughs> Jack Tracy and Jim Berkey in Subcutaneously, my dear Watson, trace the course of Holmes's drug dependence from 1887 to 1902 with only short interim drug-free periods, and even they label Watson's statement here an insupportable boast. Poor Watson, hey? He can't even have this win. No, he can't have this win at all. I don't know. I mean, did you make anything of that, or do you just want to leave it in the air that way? I found that it was something that made me give the principles a three, at least, was that mm -hmm. moment of character for Watson as you instead of a pooch, as you mentioned. So, sorry. Okay, I did call him a pooch. But then he's replaced by an actual pooch that does something. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's the amusing part. Um, <laughs> and you got to love that uh, Pompey there, hey? Um, yeah, I guess, but compared, compared, to, compared to him, though, Toby was a, verit a, a veritable Caesar. He, he was. Well, was he, though? Because Pom Toby didn't do anything. He failed. At least this guy traced down the, you know. True. To to True. Toby, that, that's what I said. He exonerated his weaknesses because... Um, Pompey succeeded in his limited role. Do you know what a draghound is? I looked into this as well. A draghound is a dog, uh, or is, drag hounds were dogs that were trained to race by following a scent left by an item dragged in front of them, hence the term draghound. Originally, dogs followed foxes, right, that were just let loose on the courses, but eventually, live animals were replaced with artificial scents, and aniseed was one that they would often do. And so, to describe Pompey as the pride of the local drag hounds tells you that uh, he was a racing dog. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Well, I guess maybe that's what made him a little bit better than Toby, I suppose. Well, I guess so, yeah. Toby might have been cooler in the sense that Holmes seemed to like him a lot more. Like yeah. Here, here it's just like, oh, I picked up this random dog named Pompey. Let's go. Here he comes, you know. Whereas there was more of a build-up to Toby because when he goes to the house and he asks for Toby in the sign of the four, we kind of think he might be a man or a woman or some, a kid or something. Yeah, there's, there's a build-up, yeah. There's a build-up. Anyway, so it's that's like, oh, a little it's bit a puppy. of a puppy, And yeah. he's kind of, and, and, and he has, and, and you know, there, there's kind of like a, a, you could tell that Arthur Conan Doyle was having fun, you know, writing about Holmes and Toby and then the interaction be, be tw between them was more successful than <laughs> the the actual, you know, d detective work of the dog itself. Yeah, totally. Uh, so yeah, note. I was a three with principles here. Um, beyond okay, cool. uh, this, 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 you know, this Holmes going back into his addiction. And as you mentioned, this case kind of just being like a fix for him, just for him to get on with, you know, the next investigation. Um, I never really found anything remarkable in, in his work here that we haven't seen before. Okay, cool. Um, I'm just looking at my score here. I, I got the number, but I thought I had made a couple of notes here for it as well. Yes, I did. Uh, <clears throat> my score for the principles, <clears throat> I think you're going to be surprised here. Oh, no, wait. No, you're not. I'm looking at the wrong story. <laughs> I was going to say, what the hell? That's not my score. And indeed, <laughs> and indeed it wasn't my score. Uh, my score, what did you say you went for? A three. Three. 
well, maybe you will be a bit surprised. Um, I thought Holmes was was pretty fun in here. Uh, Watson is very lame, but I went for a three point five. Okay. I liked it a shade more than you. I, I kind of enjoyed following the two of them, even though I wasn't really hugely enamored by you know by what they were getting up to. If that if that's of any you know. Yeah, that that to me was the uh, highlight of the story was just their investigation. But to me, I, I, I've just seen way better. I've seen other cases much better laid out. Um, yeah, okay, fine. But I, I did like that there were some inaccuracies here. Like I thought, I, I think it's ridiculous that Holmes was educated in in uh, in over there, right? Cambridge, we we presume based on our discussions and, and our yes. research over the last while. But, you know, some think Oxford, but whatever. One of those two schools is where he went, right? And it is almost inconceivable that an English-educated man like he would not know anything about rugby. And if indeed Godfrey Staunton was like the star of the country, then he would know <laughs> something of him. And I find it ridiculous. And so I like that scene that he has with him where where he gets so insulted, you know, Um when what's his face shows up he he gets uh overton overton shows up and he gets really offended that holmes doesn't know anything about him and so holmes is checking his index right and he has five or six notes on other stauntons but not the godfrey stauntin and that lack of familiarity is is both charming because it's funny and it's completely ridiculous because of course he would know something being an educated uh public school boy you know yeah. Anyway, so I kind of liked that. There were some fun moments in here for the characters, and I did like that Holmes. I, I loved the clever move, and I did like the fact that we were kept from it. Um, we were kept from a lot in this story, and I didn't like that, as I said in my plot summary. But I did think it was cool how Holmes, without being told, went and sprayed the wheels of the carriage so that he wouldn't get tricked again, and that he would get the dog. Like I thought, all of that was really clever, and so his move on that. I think is worth at least a three five. You know, part of me yeah. says, part of me says, because the rest of the story I wasn't keen on. You know, I'd go a little higher, but no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it at three point five. Okay, I, 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 I agree with your points, and uh, that's definitely a good point about him spraying the wheel. And I, I you know, I, I attest to his ingenuity again in this particular story. But I just, I to me, I just seen them work. The, I don't know. I, I just found something about them working this case that, like, like, like they always do, just. That didn't jive me like the previous stories. No problem. Uh, what about the investigation then? I was a three. Generous yeah. three. A generous three? Okay. Well, uh, generous three, yeah? Yes. Okay. Just just give me a couple, just a minute. Just a minute on that. Uh, generous three? I wasn't really, I didn't really, I, I don't know. Like to me, I felt I was like in the realm of, it was like university. I felt I was in the realm of the three students again, you know, like just mm -hmm. be, uh, yeah, mediocrity. Like I thought maybe this would be like some kidnapping plot. And when the doctor came in and he was kind of a somewhat good antagonist to Holmes, I was kind of drawn in, but then that had another ham fisted kind of ending with the, the, the dead wife and everything. I'm like, what, what is this? And I, I, I just I, I just didn't see the artistry of that twist, and I just found it kind of just like out of left field. And I don't know what Waltz, I don't know what Arthur Conan Doyle was going for with with, with that particular tale. Uh, maybe this is something that he was trying to reflect on in his own life, and he was putting in his work. I don't know, but I just don't think uh, the uh, the story was kind of. I just didn't find it intriguing. 
No problem. I also didn't find it intriguing, but my investigation mark does extend a little bit to style, and I did think there was some good writing in here. I've already given you that one little moment that I liked between mm-hmm. him and Overton about the whole rugby, and you didn't know who Staunton was. I also thought it was hilarious. This I laughed out loud, and, and honestly laughed out loud, and there aren't many lines in this. There are some where I'm chuckling to myself. There are some where I'm smiling. There are some where I'm really surprised and happy, but then there are some, and there's the t- only been a couple where I've laughed out loud. Do you have any idea okay. which one it could have been? Probably the telegraph officer scene. No, no, that was funny. But it was when they were talking about um, the uncle. And uh, I'll just read oh, it to you. Oh, Uncle Pennybags. Yeah, yeah. Lord Mount James. And I guess I just found it funny because of the image. And maybe it's not all that funny. So, y- you know, you can water me down if you need to. Uh, this throws new light upon the matter. Lord Mount James is one of the richest men in England. So I've heard Godfrey say. And your friend was closely related. Yes, he was their heir. And the old boy is nearly 80. Crammed full of gout, too. They say he could chalk his billiard cue with his knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that, that led me on to learning a little bit more about gout, believe it or not. And I'll read that for you too. It's only a short note. Gout is a disorder that strikes men, usually over the age of 30s, characterized by chronic inflammation of the joints. A buildup of urate deposits on the tissue surrounding the joints can cause deformity and sometimes extreme stiffness, particularly in the feet and hands. In a remarkable case of coincidence, this editor discovered that Sir Thomas Watson, 1792 to 1882, in his lectures on principles and practice of physic, wrote, quote, a namesake of mine, Mr. Henry Watson, describes in the first volume of Medical Communications in the case of a Mr. Middleton who was accustomed, when playing at cards, to chalk or score the game upon the table with his gouty knuckles. <laughs> Did Overton use this phrase by chance in describing Lord Mount James? Was he perhaps repeating a remark that the physician of Lord Mount James, who may have, who may even have been Sir Thomas Watson... Or did John H. Watson, who may have well attended a lecture by his namesake or read his great work, interpolate the remark himself in reporting the incident? I think it's. Incredible. I would say the latter. Yeah, of course, of course. But I think because it's Overton funny. seems a bit of like a An oaf. you know a yeah. Riverdale <laughs> kind of moose kind of guy, you know. He does, yeah. Anyway, I, I thought that was cool. Um, is it Doyle's humor, or was the idea drawn from Sir Thomas Watson in his medical observations? Who knows? But it's still cool. It could very well could have been Sir Thomas Watson, because I yeah. guarantee you, um, Watson probably was made was or Arthur Conan Doyle could have been made aware of of Thomas Watson, you know, via his uh, mentor Babbage. Not mm-hmm. Babbage, sorry, but yeah. um, not Babbage. What, what's his name? <clears throat> All I know is I, I forget his name. The name escapes me, but uh, the the professor that Arthur Conan Doyle studied under was the inspiration for Sherlock oh, yeah, Holmes. Bell, yeah. Bell, yes, Bell. And uh, it, it seems to me that um, uh, he could have easily picked, picked that up from Bell about Watson, well, like an I, anecdote or something. I went for a 3.5 on the investigation for this one because I, okay. I did like some of the features of writing. So you're, I'm at 7 and you're at 6 so far. Okay. This is your, unprecedented so far. Your interpretation of the style uh, definitely has convinced me a little more, and that's one thing I guess I didn't look into because I was just so bored with the story. So I'll I'll, I'll raise to a three point five. Well, if you want to, pal, I, you know it's uh, it's, uh, it's okay, cool. I, that, that, yeah, I think that I think that's fine. Um, the perpetrator. I kind of like the perpetrators in this story. I think they they were a strong part for me. I like Doctor Armstrong. I liked I liked his honest way of speaking, and mm-hmm. and you can see why he would see Holmes as a meddler in this fashion, based oh, on totally. what he was actually doing, and then also just Holmes himself being a bit parasitical and you know reaping um, 
I guess, success from the tragedies of others. You can kind of see how people would view him in that fashion. And I can see, you know, also he's, the doctor is a bit of a blowhard as well. Uh, that letter that he sent, you know, in a very kind of arrogant kind of way to Holmes to stand down and just go back to your master, Lord Pennybags and whatnot. I, I, I found that uh, he would build enough to be a kind of a very interesting villain. I am um, relieved, though, that he wasn't as cliched as I thought he was. And I did like that turn of events with him, you know, being friend to Staunton and, uh, you know, and being part of this this tragedy involving the uh, wife. So that did surprise me. So I give the perpetrator 3.5. Cool. What did you think of Pennybags? It was just another blowhard, aristocratic type kind of guy. We see, you know, they've come and gone before. I didn't really think of anything great about him, to be honest. Well, I, I agree with you. He was exactly that. I also gave them, the perpetrators, a 3.5. But there was one feature about him that I really liked. And it's the fact that he rides the bus all, all the time. Like, I thought that was really funny because, of course, a cheap bastard is going to ride the bus, right? Like, <laughs> he's not going to have his own carriage paying out. He's going to find that because once you hit 60 over here, you get a free bus pass. And right. I was just trying to equate it to the modern day where, like, yeah, here's an old guy who's, like, saving all his money riding the bus <laughs> next to all these teens with their headphones on, you know? Obviously, yeah, it's, it's not it's not like that, but it's kind of funny, kind of funny. It kind uh, of is, yeah. But that's good. That's a good point. Yeah. Did you see him as a? I was seeing different articles on on this, and do you do you see him as a as part as kind of a perpetrator in a way? No, because, I see him as a red herring. Yeah, he's a red herring. He's a bit of a font of misery for sure, and um, kind of the kind of what stemmed the problem of what led to the story. Yeah. But um, you know, the consumption, you know, comes when it does. So I mean, there's not there there, there, there there's there's not much that that you can do around that. No, I think that the uh, <clears throat> environment as well is kind of, it's, it's not null and void, but it's definitely middling to uh, to okay. So I went for a three with the environment. So did I. Yeah, there wasn't a lot there to talk about. I, I thought it sped up a bit in terms of descriptive uh, you know, charm when we get to the end and you get the, the cottage and the, the carriage riding and all that stuff. But nah, there wasn't really a hell of a lot in there for environment. And I don't think Doyle was really going there so three might be generous because i don't think environment was really all that central what to was your one. mark for the principal for the sort of for the perpetrators oh i'm sorry uh, i went 3.5 okay cool tied on that one okay yeah. very good and the secondary characters for me i went for a four here huh. which i i think is kind of generous like i do appreciate that but the reason i went there you know i i just kind of felt like in this story okay you've got the doctor right armstrong as you said You've got Lord uh, MJ and yeah, his contentiousness. Yeah. And then you got Overton, who's kind of oafish. But I think the three of them together do make the story kind of, you know, workable. And a little don't more than the telegraph. that. Don't, don't forget the telegraph girl. Oh, the telegraph girl. That's a good show. That's right. I can't forget her. Um, and so the fact that we can put a unique quality to each of them. The oafishness of Overton, the cantankerousness, but the double guessing that we do with the doctor. We know he's hiding a secret, but it's kind of an innocence. And then we've got the perpetrator, the old guy who, you know, chocks Billy Cues with his knuckles and rides the bus. Like, I think there's enough humor and character there yeah. for me collectively to offer a four. I concur. I think four is a fair grade as well. So you, you went for four? I did. Okay, in that case, uh, our scores are identical apart from one part. And so I went 18.5 and you went to 18. 
That's identical scores to our first way up. That's pretty funny, actually. A final point I want to make on um, the th- missing three quarter. Oh, no, uh, hang on. Have... That's not true. That's not true, buddy. Uh, Wes. Sorry, I got to do the maths again. That is 17.5 and 17. Oh, there's 0.5 more or something that you gave on the investigation, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yep. So we liked that one a shade less than the one before. Uh, oh, well. It happens. It happens every now and then. And now, my you friend, you want to say something about the oh, three sorry, quarters? Go right ahead. Do right um, you, you say you had some information about three quarters? Well, yeah. I mean, I can tell you, it's a long, extended note, but it's a position. Um, it's it's a position, an important position in the backfield of a rugby game. So you know how you, your team is made up of different players, different position. The, the, the yeah. three quarter is just a position played on the rugby pitch. I see. All right. So I don't. I, I don't. I, I mean, I can go on to it, but it's it's not really enlightening or really that exciting. But I mentioned you know about the whole quarterback thing. I don't. I know. I know that like it's not like the equivalent of the of their quarterback in American football. But I guess it's 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 almost like a a key player in the game. I suppose you could say. Yes, I guess you could say that. Sure, yeah. I guess you could say that. Game well, one I mean, the, or two, it, uh, door one or two. Uh, door two. Door two. Good shout, buddy. You got uh, you've got game over. A track from a Henry Mancini score. Hmm. Charade, you know that one, Cary oh, Grant. Oh, Charade with uh, Cary Grant and yep. Audrey Hepburn. That's it. So uh, we got Game Over. It's just a short track, one and a half minutes. I thought I'd play it because it was truly Game Over for uh, this plot, really. I guess once they reach the doctor's <coughs> office. But hey, there it is, Game Over, and it's fun. And the end for Mrs. Staunton. The end, very much the sad end for Mrs. Staunton. Another female character that gets no voice. The music does, I think, uh, represent maybe a bit of that carriage chase, a little bit of the intrigue, but ultimately nothing too incredible. Game over from Henry Mancini's score to Charade and game over for the adventure of the missing three quarter. So that's two stories down of the last four tales of uh, the return of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I will say within your musical choice there, (laughs) that was more evocative of the Thames boat chase uh, than it definitely was of that of that uh, carriage ride that Tom <laughs> went on following the doctor. I know. I you know. may as well just have called like, uh, you know, like some, your local cable provider and be put on hold. That's how exciting <laughs> the music would it would be for that chase. Yeah. 
You're right. And that kind of makes me think of my plot summary. I was talking about the adventure of the roadside assistance call. <laughs> yeah. Same hey, thing. Man. Those, uh, you know, sometimes you got to put your four light, your, your blinkers on, you know, and you got to, it's, it's inconvenient, you know, I mean. <laughs> it is, it really is. <laughs> on to the adventure of the Abbey Grange. Is it appropriate to be saying the adventure of? That's the way my book has it written, and that's the way the Klinger edition has it written, but I see them referred to as just the titles, you know? Yeah, the adventures, yes. It, it depends on, I think, on the, what editions you have. Hmm. Uh, to me, this is more of the mystery of Abbey Grange. I'll just say that right away. Okay, cool. Well, um, you have to pardon me here. I'm uh, eating a rice cake and drinking some beer, as you do on a Saturday afternoon. Or I'm having some OJ, as you do on a Saturday morning. Well, the Goodreads Index review average for the adventure uh, mystery of the Abbey Grange is 3.9 out of 5. And Matt gave it a 5-star review, saying... There was a good story with a nice finish to this case. It's another instance where the often cold Sherlock uses his heart when pronouncing final judgment. Now, that's a soundbite I don't mind sharing. You know, a lot of these we make fun of. A lot of these we pick up and they're crap. Matt, good on you, buddy, because you're giving me something that is concise and articulate and shares an opinion. Exactly. He put all those three things in, into mm-hmm. the review. As opposed Matt, to- whoever you, you are... Go ahead. Props to you, boy. Props to you. As opposed to uh, this girl, who I think confused her review on the Abbey Grange, maybe with a personal ad. Um, I like adventure. And then her name, which I think I'll uh, I'll keep out here. <laughs> Are you sure? Sure, it was a girl, or was that like yeah. Ralph Wiggum? <laughs> I think it's a girl. I like adventure. I, th- I think it was a girl. Uh, then I got this one. Uh, a guy military. A guy named uh, Redwan, two stars. In almost all detective stories, there comes a case when the detective has to make a judgment call whether to acquit the criminal or not, to determine who's the bigger criminal, who did the bigger sin. This one's like that. Two stars. Hmm. Uh, and deep. deep, yeah. And then Raoul with a four-star review. Through the first part of the story, it was quite interesting. There was a brief disenchantment to encounter, but it was the only reasonable answer to all the quests. Was it? I don't know what that means. Um, bad English, maybe? I have no idea. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, my friend, The Adventure of the Abbey Grange yeah, was so we were published talking about... on, uh, in the September edition of The Strand, 1904, and in December of Collier's in 1904. Uh, Collier's decided to defer the release of the final four stories of The Return to focus on having a huge Christmas issue. So... Oh. That's the reason that this story, which was the 12th of 12, was published in sequence properly by the Strand, but Collier's in America decided to withhold it because they wanted their December edition to be a big seller. Of course. But I've got, I got a bit more information on that if you're interested. Capitalism. Yeah, yeah, huzzah. Mm-hmm. Huzzah, indeed. Um, <clears throat> on the 26th of April, 1904, Doyle wrote to editor Greenhouse Smith and told him that Holmes was now finished. He had finished his 12 promised stories, and he could now rest. In fact, he wrote Requiset Pace, or Rest in Peace. It would appear, though, that this was Doyle's intended final home story. <laughs> there are several clues in the writing to suggest this, too, such as, and I'm not going to step on your plot summary, don't worry, such as, one, well, that's the, fact, annoying. the fact that Holmes tells Watson, or us, the readers, that he was going to write a textbook on deduction, 
The fact that Holmes is at his best, lots of vigor, lots of sophistication, and the fact that Holmes exercises extra legal I have my apologies. That's what happens when your Bluetooth on your phone cuts in with your uh, stereo system. Well, I'm just moving on. I'm not even, I'm not even acknowledging it. Holmes <laughs> exercises his extra-legal liberties in discharging Captain Crocker. Anyway, we'll see what you think about it, because this isn't, of course, Holmes's last adventure. Doyle had one more commitment uh, to come, and that came in the form of the second stain, which was a commission by his friend Sam McClure, and I'll say more about that in a few minutes when we get there. But basically, uh, although this was supposed to be the end... McClure, an Irish publisher, friend of Doyle's, had offered him £75,000 at the time for 12 more stories or £25,000 for a one-off novella, which is why we get the second stain, uh, which was then pared down for a short story. But we'll talk about that next time. I didn't want to step on your toes too much. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, well, second stain, we'll talk about that for sure. I can definitely have seen that being a novella more so than a... uh... Mm -hmm. Interesting, very interesting. Let's, let's let's move this puppy along, brother. Give me a plot summary on the Abbey Grange. So, you know, we were talking about Lord Mount James and, and uh, you know, him being a miserly son of a bitch in his own kind of way. Well, he's got nothing on on Sir Eustace Brackenhall. The adventure of the Abbey Grange or when Sherlock Holmes handles a delicate situation with delicacy. Hmm. <laughs> This yarn begins in media rests with Hopkins, a.k.a. Lestrade 2.0, wiring Holmes and Watson out to Abbey Grange, an estate just outside of Chiselworst. I don't know where that is. I the do. owner of the estate, Sir Eustace Brackenhall, has been murdered. His skull caved in by what appears to be a fireplace poker. T'was burglars, Hopkins offers, probably the Randall gang given the M.O. Obliging to Hopkins in Scotland Yard, Holmes gets to work on his bloodhound skills, whilst Watson does this thing his thing, I suppose, whatever that is. To be fair, Watson does have a tangible element in this story, as well as, as well, one could argue, in other stories in this collection, and that is to simply sprout wood every time a delicate lady enters the picture. <laughs> yeah, he does do that. Poor guy, he must miss Mary something awful. Wait, is she dead at this time this story takes place? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> With Watson's engorged description, the fierce blonde, <laughs> blue-eyed Australian bride of Sir Eustace enters the picture. Can I just the interrupt headstrong... you for a second? Yes, sir. What does it say about us? And I don't mean us, me and you. I mean us humans. That a dick joke can always stop and get a laugh. Uh, we have a, we have a, we still have a bit a bit more to go before <laughs> okay. we we, uh, we we reach perfection like the Vulcan race. Okay. Cheers. <laughs> Spock would just shake his head right now. Hmm. He probably he probably likes Sherlock Holmes though. Maybe. Anyways, with Watson's engorged description, the fierce blonde, blue-eyed Australian bride of Sir Eustace enters the picture. This headstrong Sheila—that's an Australian term for a woman—received a good walloping from the Randalls. The blow bruising her eye, keeping her senseless, as her husband was killed just feet away from her. Lady Brackenhall had been found by Teresa Wright, her loyal maid and body servant that arrived with her from Australia when she was betrothed to Sir Eustace. She was tied up in a chair, bound by the torn bell cord in the dining room. The lady does not omit a single detail, except perhaps what actually happened to Holmes, describing how she saw through the large French window, looking into the lawn, the Randall gang entering the house, the elder Randall choking her out, his homer to her Bart, 
punching her in the face to incapacitate her and utilizing the frayed bell cord to retrain her, restrain her from to, to the chair. Now, Sir Eustace, who was not a nice man, she admits, is in fact is rather a raging, abusive alcoholic who often berated her verbally and beat her, came charging into the room where he had, he received the ultimate price for his heroism, a fatal blow to the head. Oh, well, what goes around comes around. Let's just say the open and shuttedness of this case irks Holmes considerably, even more so than their slightly less irksome evidence of three wine glasses poured by the Randall gang after their break-in and the commission of their murderous act. But Holmes is too pissed at a boring clear-cut case like this one and huffs off with Watson trailing behind him back to London. Lestrade 2.0 has got this one. The Randall gang are the culprits. They just have to track the rascals down before they flee to America. Halfway back to London, Holmes' delayed powers of deduction kick in. I guess he needed that iOS upgrade after all. The three wine glasses, the B-swing being poured into the third glass. Yep, this was another observation. The frayed bell cord that was down from the ceiling and used to buy Lady Brackenhall. All of this does not compute. Sherlock EXE is not responding. Something is wrong. Holmes heads back to Abbey Grange. Watson, dutiful as ever, follows along. Ready for a second go at the case, Holmes interviews the maid and inspects the dining room where Sir Eustace was killed. More nasty stories of the Vic pop up, the maid going into detail on the physical and verbal blandishments Sir Eustace put on his wife, including a corker of a tale regarding Sir Eustace setting Lady Brackenhall's dog on fire. Yeah, why do we care about this guy's death? Oh, right, due process, public order, etc., etc. Whilst in the dining room, Holmes examines the frayed bell cord and this moment solves the proverbial Gordian knot. He spidies up onto the mantle, seeing the height in which the cord was cut and examining the knots used for the binding. Then he drops the bomb on Lady Brackenhall. So what really happened here? But Lady Brackenhall, fierce of the continent that made her, presses she has told all that she knows. Holmes gives her one more chance, but she has an iron will, that one. In his most chivalrous move in all of his adventures so far, Holmes returns to London, not disclosing with Hopkins' his new findings in the case. Surprise, surprise, this is breaking news. Water equals wet. He instead engages an inquiry based on the gathered clues and tracks down Mr. Jack Croker, captain of the vessel Rock of Gibraltar, the same vessel that Lady Brackenstall traveled to England years before. He was first officer at the time when he made her acquaintance and fell in love with the lady. Oh, young love. It was not to be requited, at least not yet. Lady Brack went to become well, Lady Brack, and the grains of the hourglass fell where they may. It was only when vacationing near Abbey Grains that he heard word of a POS Sir, Sir Eustace really was. Yes, yes, so he went to see if, if she was all right. And Eustace caught her in conversing with him and went apeshit, riding, riot, striking her down with a cudgel and going for Croker. Croker defended himself a little too well with the poker and Bob's your uncle, mate. Croker, Lady Brack, and Miss Wright set the illusion of the break-in, complete with the three wine glasses, cutting down the bell rope to complete the picture and dumping the stolen valuables, just some plate, really, in the pond outside, all suggested by the clues that Holmes was able to piece together. But that's not all, folks. Holmes has already learned from Hopkins that the Randalls were arrested stateside that every very evening, and that new suspects would have to be looked for at the Brackenhall murder. A calculating machine and a gentleman, Holmes pulls legal rank and all but declares Croker an innocent man, even giving him a head start and a future pass with wedded bliss with his Aussie beloved. Ah. <laughs> you know what? <clears throat> there are elements of this story teased out in your plot summary there that remind me of the uh, a case of identity, a really early one, or mm -hmm. an earlier adventure, because we've got marriage laws things going on here, you know, like this idea of divorce and separation and, and Brackenstall not able to, to acquire that and... Almost like the death of this guy is is necessary so that this female character can be 
exonerated and and I think you know in a, in a not exonerated I'm sorry uh, freed and I think that there's a real gentility to this story to its morality kind of you know yes to me yeah I was kind of I wouldn't I wasn't trying to be too humorous there even though I had that dick joke in there because That's it's good. true I just want to point out right now okay let's just go to that just give me a second here let's just look at examples here of our dear Watson okay Are you are you about to justify his literary erection? I'm I'm about to justify his literary erection, indeed, sir. Okay, well, don't let me get in the way of that. Don't let me cock block you. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Lady Brackenstall was no ordinary person. Seldom have I seen so graceful a figure, so womanly a present, and so beautiful a face. She was a blonde, golden-haired, blue-eyed, and would no doubt. Have had the perfect Would, complexion, uh, <laughs> which goes with such coloring, had not her recent experience left her drawn and haggard. The lady lay back exhausted upon a couch, but her quick observant gaze as we entered the room and the alert expression on her beautiful features showed that neither her wits nor her courage had been shaken by this terrible experience. She was enveloped in a loose dressing gown of blue and silver, but a black sequin-covered dinner dress was hung upon the couch beside her. And then we go to, I, I know we're, we're jumping ahead to the next story, but this is the introduction of, uh, of the, uh, of hopes of hopes wife. A moment later, our modest apartment already so distinguished in that morning was further honored by the ent entrance of the most lovely woman in, in London. I had often heard of the beauty of the youngest daughter of the Duke of Belminster, but no description of it and no, con no contemplation of colorless photographs had prepared me for the subtle, delicate charm and the beautiful coloring of that ex exquisite head. And yet as, he, yet as we saw it that autumn morning, it was not its beauty which would be the first thing to impress the observer. The cheek was lovely, but it was pale with emotion. The eyes were bright, but it was the brightness of fever. The sensitive mouth was, taut, was tight and drawn in effort after self-command. Terror, not beauty, was what sprang first to the eye as our fair visitor stood framed for an instant in the open door. If that doesn't tight mouth tight and drawn and those kind of imagery if that does not encapsulate victorian re sexual repression i don't know what does yeah yeah you're good to point that out and of course we've got two like you say the next story also features a really beautiful woman that watson can't seem to you know let come into the the home without describing that way uh in other words or in a in a less you know pleasant uh, descriptor you know he gets wood <laughs> yeah, he's he comes off a bit randy. I'll, I'll, I'll... Randy, yeah, he doesn't. Do Not that. like the Randalls because, you know, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I got a few notes on this story before or perhaps while we, we, we chew out our uh, pipes. Yes. <clears throat> um, the first of, of course, this has got a really famous beginning um, with Holmes waking Watson up and telling him to get moving, right? Come, come, Love the, game, it. the game is afoot. Yeah, it's great. Do you know Love where it. do you know where the game is afoot for, it comes from? I, I think you do. The game is afoot. Oh, from Shakespeare? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, is it uh Hamlet? No. Starts with an H though. Oh. Henry the Fourth. Henry the Fourth part, yes. part one? Uh-huh. Yep. Though elementary, my dear Watson, is more popularly known, it actually doesn't appear anywhere in the canon whatsoever. But this nope. does, and that's that's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, Henry the Fourth, Part One. That's right. 
Anyway, uh, yeah, that, that's it's a great start to the story. I really like the way the investigation begins um, with that sort of impact. You know, it, it gives the same effectiveness narratively to the way starting in the middle of a conversation can in a certain story or a certain setting. You know, it, it just gives an immediacy to the action and... Um, it's just a new way of doing something, and I'm glad at this stage to see him doing something new. Yes, like you get Tom honestly like sick of that like every Baker, you know that Baker Street introduction something you know they're sitting down talking about something or yeah, Holmes yeah. making some observ- amazing observation out of nowhere and then all of a sudden you know Hopkins or Lestrade's at the door or something like that or a client at the door you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you see this bit. <clears throat> Where am I? He's talking, yeah, Holmes is talking with Watson, right? And they're like, and Watson gets a little offended, right? Because Holmes is like, oh, Watson, you don't write these stories properly. You know, you're all about the, yeah. you're all about the entertainment factor and not about, not about the surgical details of, of deduction. And Holmes is like, well, or Watson says, why don't you write your own, right? And Holmes says, yes, I intend to or whatever. In <laughs> fact, I didn't know this until I read the annotations, but there are two stories coming up in the casebook of Sherlock Holmes that are actually written by Holmes. Interesting. So well, that'll, that'll be fun to get to those to see, because at the very least, it shows Doyle doing something different, you know? Yes. So it's it's cool to see that. I guess all I can offer is to watch this space, you know, and we'll we'll get there when we get there. We'll get there when we get there, indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought it was funny. You mentioned in your plot summary uh, the, <laughs> the cudgel of Sir Eustace, right? And, yes. Um, it, it was his favorite cudgel. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking to myself... <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, it's a simple thing, right? Just reading it on the page. But the fact that Sir Eustace has a favorite weapon of punishment, like, really enables us to side easily with his wife, right? Because... If saying the dog on fire doesn't already accomplish that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. In in the adaptation, he drowns the dog. Oh, dear God. Yeah, it's it, the dog, like, the, the, dog, the dog's tombstone is found in the swamp. Like, it's really creepy. Anyway. I I just thought like you know her abusive experience does draw some pretty serious uh, sympathy from the reader. Oh, absolutely, and that's the whole point is so that like this is a total uh, example of the asshole victim, right? Yeah, totally. And we've seen it before too, haven't we? With uh, the crooked man. The crooked man, yes. That locked room mystery. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, okay. Let me let me just let me go first with the pipes. Um, I'll I'll, I'll say what I want to say here about the. Um, the principles. It hasn't happened in a while, Josh, and I understand Watson had a reduced role kind of here, but I do like the banter. I do like... Yes. I, I do kind of like the chat between the two of them. I like his observations, even if they're a little juvenile, a little horny. I don't mind that because it, it, it's no. character drawing, right? Exactly. It hasn't happened in a while, and I like the way Watson it's came consistent. in. It's consistent. It's consistent. I like the way that Watson came in at the end acting as jury, you know, to the whole morality thing. Yes. I went I went full marks five for the principles here. And I, I I realized that if I was in the middle of the adventures or the memoirs, I might not be going for a five here. But the fact is, I've been waiting for a tale for a while now where I feel there's a simpatico, there's an excitement, there's a reason to cheer for both of these guys. And it would have been, had Watson not been involved in the end with that, 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 that sort of phony judiciary, it would have been a 4.5. But because Watson was given some agency and some credit by Holmes as the best jury imaginable, <laughs> I... Of course, he makes himself judge, but you know, I went five. I went five. I wanted to. I felt it was time, and I maybe I can fault them. Yes, 
But, well, you know, the aesthetics sh- of it made me go five. Well, to share your zeitgeist there, uh, I had 4.5 originally for the perpetrator, for the principles. And uh, I'm going for, I'll go for a full five on this too. I, I definitely agree with you. I love the agency of Watson in this story. I don't care if he sprouts wood. Good for him. That's agency <laughs> to me. So <laughs> That's agency. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't help, you know, feeling a little bit, you know, blow the equator when he was describing that as well. So I'm in, I'm a man, I'm, I'm a red-blooded man. I'm picturing maybe like, I don't know, Margot Robbie or or Naomi Watts or something like that. I don't know. But anyways, um, I would say that, uh, yeah, I think five is, is is very, very fair. And I think it's the, the principles are the strongest part of this story. I actually also like the investigation as well and how it was laid out. Um, there wasn't any kind of ridiculous twists to this story. And, and yes, it was kind of predictable in some capacity. Um, the, I think Holmes was, was the game was indeed afoot. And uh, everything about the energy of the characters in this story really compelled me to, to enjoy it. So five is a fair mark. Good. Um, <clears throat> I also want to point out, you know, that Holmes completely takes the law into his own into his own little hands here, his own world, you know, his own. I like that order. lawless, that kind of like that neutral or that chaotic good, I guess, yeah. if you use Dungeons and Dragons uh, um, alignments, uh, he's that chaotic good. You know what I mean? Like he, he's a force of good and uh, in the world, but he realizes that the laws, the law, sometimes justice can be blind because of how it has to, to, to stay to adhere to law. Mm-hmm. And, in order to have true, 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 true justice, you have to make compromises um, that that you know that a, that the court of law just cannot agree upon, you know, for the sake of public order. But that's what makes humanity interesting, and that's why I think Holmes kind of stands out here in the story. Yeah, I agree with you. He has a lot of respect for Crocker, and you can see that it's not written on the page, but you can see that because of his gestures towards him. And I like the way he says, you know, you go away for a year. And then you come back when things have died down and perhaps you can have this girl, you know, this this girl that you once had and and you've kind of saved her from the hands of villainy and abusive future. You know, I, I like all of that stuff, but I you've become a bit of a softy. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that's not wrong to say that. But I also think back to the study in Scarlet where we had that wonderful description of Holmes's mind attic, you know, and how he yes. how he um processes and organizes information only retaining the important things that will trigger other important things i feel like this is another great example of of how um we're dealing with a character that is on the autistic spectrum and the reason i feel that way is because most people empathetically most people empathetically would take with them the real fact that they have done an illegal business in not involving the police, that they have made a decision to withhold information from the police. And the fact that he does this and can do it jovially, can do it uh, as a, a game almost with Crocker at the end here and not carry that with him processing forward in life, I think that is a great example of how his mind works differently to other people. And mm-hmm. to the to the majority, perhaps, because let's face it, if we took the law into our own hands, we would be worried about consequence. We would be worried about how we would be judged. We would be worried about did we do the right thing? Should we have communicated and involved the process of law 
but he doesn't. And we know because of his mind attic, because of the way he processes things, he will cast this to the side. He will not doubt himself. He will not have any sort of feeling of guilt or emotional remorse towards this decision. And I really like that character feature of him. It, I mean, it's remarkable still because we're years away from a definition of what Asperger's is, of what, what uh, autism is. You know, there's no real understanding of this. Yet I think we're seeing in true color here a character who can forget whatever he wants to forget and show very little empathy for, you know, law and society when it comes to his own moral compass. Yes, absolutely. I also feel that you're right on that score because I think too, you got to think about how he thinks the calculating machine, you know, it's, I think he weighed the pros and cons as well. I mean, so Sir Eustace, who is a piece of shit, uh, is killed. Yes. You know, public order has to be maintained, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, this will destroy the lives of Lady Brackenhall, most likely, as well as Croker, who really does not deserve it, you know, for defending uh, himself from a, from a madman with his, who actually has a favorite cudgel. Yeah, I think Holmes knew what the he, he knew he knew he knew logically what kind of character Sir Eustace was, and he knew that this investigation would end up being a case of like you know the, the, the jurisprudence of you know of, of misjudged jurisprudence. That to me, it just it just seemed that it was the only option. And that's exactly what goes on with the line of thinking about this spectrum um, autistic kind of ideal that you have your own moral compass and you can cast aside that what he did was wrong. Mm-hmm. Even when Walk, even even like even Watson is it's kind of shocked at how he pretty much lied to Hopkins that by withholding uh, information, and he said, "You think that was bad? Oh, that, that was a bad thing for me to do." And but 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 Watson in one of the, which was. Another example, the bang on writing that uh, Watson was given was, I trust your judgment. This isn't just him following Sherlock Holmes along. This is him understanding how Sherlock is thinking and that being conveyed in the story. Yeah. And I, I think that's what that also adds more more um, uh, reason to give the principles of five. And to me, anyways, also to give the, uh, the investigation a, a stronger mark as well. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that. And I'm actually really happy that we're talking super positively about a story here because I feel like we haven't done this in a while. I mean, obviously, we've had a lot of fun. We've had good chats. But I finally feel like with the return, we're getting a a great story, one that Doyle is excited about. And to know that this was what he intended to be his last home stories ever is, you know, well, uh, almost until he remembered his... uh, his responsibility yeah but this was the (laughs) end you know this could have been the end of his strand at least relationship i think that again he's put an effort in here and maybe he is going an extra little bit to finish this off and he is happy to rest his character with this case because i feel that this is a deftly written story i sense a depth of character there are fun clues that i'm following as a reader as opposed to just getting everything at the end and oh I, I got to follow Holmes. Now I can kind of go with him and make my own hypotheses. And those are the best adventures where I'm not yes. left to look at him and say, what a brilliant guy. I was just having to get to the end where he would info drop the solution for me that he already met. But now I'm getting to play along. And if I'm wrong, cool, that's fine. I'm still playing along with the clues and I'm enjoying what 
game Doyle's putting on the page for me. Exactly. In, in the other two, so far at least, I haven't been having much of a game. So the Abbey Grange for me, in terms of investigation, because it's deftly writ, as I said, because we're playing a good game with Holmes, because I'm enjoying the clues and the characters, and I feel that there is a certain sense of uh, moral retribution, I'm involved, I'm interested, and I went full marks for the investigation here too. I went 4.5. I'm going to stay with that a bit. I kind of wish that Croker was introducing the story a little earlier. I think he comes out of left field a little bit near the end. I he understand does. He does. why he does, but that's the only reason why I'm not going to a full five marks. But everything else you said is dead on. Uh, the investigation is perfectly layered. The clues are there. You could be wrong. You could be right. But you know that he's seen something. You're trying to put things together. The, just how I think the environs there is also key on describing uh, on, on on enforcing how strong the investigation and the narrative is of the overall s story because um, those descriptions in the environs are key to you understanding the investigation as well. So mm -hmm. that's why the environs will also get a strong mark from me from this story as well. Yeah, the environs are good. Um, but before we get there, the perpetrators, I went for a four with my perpetrator. I did um, as well. I, I like Eustace. Obviously, he is a perpetrator. Uh, though he wasn't the one who you know, crippled the striking blow, he was still complex enough that we looking at him as a hero slash villain. Uh, or sorry, Croker. Sorry. Yeah, not Eustace. Yeah, it, yeah sorry. Thank you. Uh, but I went for a four because it's working as part and parcel of the narrative investigation. It's good stuff here. I don't think any reader who's picking up this story would be disappointed. And I feel like finally I've got a tale that I could offer as a standalone episode of a great piece of work that shows off the character and what Doyle does at his best here. And so yeah. where Minus everything like works. Minus the Baskervilles. Exactly. There's kind of that flavor to it. So I went for a four and you two went for a four. I did. Yes. I, yeah. I, I, I kind of split on Croker, uh, even Millie Brackenhall to an extent, uh, as well as um, Lord Brackenhall on the whole, you know, uh, sharing the role of the perpetrator. Um, so I think four is a good mark because Lord Eustace is a piece of shit. There wasn't really much complexity to him, but he was also the victim. So we never really got to know him too much. Kroger comes in at the last act and, you know, he's a Jefferson Hope type character in his own way. Um, probably a little more noble. Uh, yeah, there are two or three like that. Yeah, there are. <laughs> there Who are. Was, what was the name of the guy the, the perp in uh, the cardboard box? Remember the guy who... Ended up in a rowboat, beating his uh, his wife and her her boyfriend. Oh yeah, his name he had a Jefferson in his name too. Did I can't remember, but he's kind of like a a better version of him. Yeah, he yeah he didn't allow anger to you know take take <laughs> yeah. over him and and yeah. make him the perpetrator. He was he was on on the, he he was on the, on the opposite end where the perpetrator was. Yeah. If you think about it. So really, the story is just is just him is carving up the death of the perpetrator. <laughs> In a sense, yeah, I think you're right, yeah. but that's okay, you know, because okay. we're having fun getting there. That's um, right. What did you say for environment? Um, I give it a solid four. Okay. I, I thought the description of the dining room, uh, the dining room of the French window, um, the, the wine glasses, um, the the whole me, me, the whole meeting between Holmes and Croker back at the apartment, um, all of those things. I, I think they were. Workmanlike, yes, and they weren't really full of overly great detail, but they were written well, and I think they helped they helped provide the clues that we needed to piece the case together as we went along with Sherlock Holmes. 
So that's why I gave it a strong mark because it helped the characters and it helped the story. Mm-hmm. And it did. And a lot of the clues within the environment, as you say, allowed Holmes to reflect and kind of reposition his thoughts. Like I liked when they were on the train, you know, and then uh, at the platform he turns because the, the the penny drops with the the bee swing in the in the wine, and he says, yes. "No, we've got to go back. We've got to go back." And then he thinks about the the, the bell cord particularly. And I'll get to that in a few moments, but yes, all these little Taylor's features, not. these little features that kind of creep back. And I, I really, really, the really like that. Yeah, yeah. But <clears throat> I, the environment didn't speak quite as much to me as it did to you. I'm only a shade below you at a 3.5. Okay. Um, but it was a good working part of the, like, the home itself Brackenstall's home, yeah, all of the things within that murder scene are quite good. Outside of that, I don't think there's really that much going on in no, terms no. of you know, what we're getting and rendered. And Four is probably a little generous, but I think overall, I just like there's just strong elements of the story overall that I just think it's, I think, I think, I think it's justified. Fair enough. Uh, I do like the little features we get, like you're saying, the knot and the fact that Holmes goes back and sees the, uh, the wine and the beast wing, I consider that environmental. And of course the, the cord, which is cut instead of just pulled, you know, and the way he deduces that later and it, it all features of environment kind of in a way. Um, <clears throat> the secondary characters, I went for a four. Yeah. I, I was happy I with too. all of it them. It was a strong cast of characters. Um, and uh, I don't think they went as high as like the investigation or the, or the main characters who were to me, who were kind of like the fixtures of the story, but they supported the story well enough. So this is again another case of giving the um, uh, one part of our pipes um, a high mark because how well they contributed to our enjoyment of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, we both got a total of twenty one point five for this story, and I feel like if we have more time, there's more we could have teased out with the wine glasses because that was a big part of the story. Yeah, one thing and... I didn't quite. If you, if you can elaborate on this just a little bit, sure, yeah. What, yeah. So is B swing kind of like the like the the legs of the wine glass, the legs of the wine, or like the tannins, or? Yeah, it's the sediment, right? The sediment, the sediment. That's, that's produced. Let me uh, let me read it to you. I got a note made here, and I do think it's worth reading because there were various theories and arguments over the specification of wine. So allow me, if uh, and it's only a short note, really. Um, uh, <clears throat> It makes me wonder, though. I wonder if Croker is kind of lying a little bit on how, on how that wine was poured. Do you honestly not think that maybe they probably all had a glass of wine in celebration of that bastard being dead? Maybe, maybe. But this is uh, how it's described, okay? Uh, right. So, Beeswing is a translucent, flaky film found in older wines, particularly those such as Port, that are bottle-aged for many years. The Dictionary of Phrase and Fable provides that a port drinker is very particular not to break the B-swing by shaking the bottle or turning it the wrong way up. What was the wine in the glasses? The most important clue is the presence of the B-swing, which generally manifests itself in crusted port, a rare and costly wine. But there are other telling signs. A. The wine had been left on the sideboard after dinner, suggesting that it was not drunk with dinner, but perhaps was intended for later drinking. This confirms that the wine was a after-dinner wine, such as port. B. Sir Eustace was, quote, one of the richest men in Kent, according to Hopkins. His lifestyle was more nouveau riche than of the landed gentry, and he made a show of his wealth, used monogram paper, displaying a coat of arms and sporting a foppish nightshirt. Thus, 
despite the fact that he was a confirmed drunkard and probably no longer particular about his own source of intoxication, for the sake of appearances, he would have stocked his wine cellar with the showiest, most expensive wines available. This suggests a bottle from the 1834 vintage, one of the most renowned of the mid-19th centuries, according to Michael Broadbent's The New Great Vintage Wine Book. The giant of the vintage was Kopke's Quinta de Royos. Although this type of port is no longer in existence, Nicholas Utekin verifies that in some remarkable wines, there, uh, that it was sold by Herod's in 1895 for 60 pounds a dozen. Of course, there can be no certainty with such scant evidence, but the 1834 Quinta de Roris does seem a likely candidate for the sideboard. <laughs> and that's a, that's a little taste of how some of these annotations go. You know, they, they kind of summarize the Sherlockian theory and, and try to even get down to what type of wine, what type of port was on the sideboard. But yes, but, that, that's, but that, uh, that's a good point you make, though, because you describing the B-Swing and him and uh, Brackenhall using port and everything like that just goes again to reinforce again what a shitty person this man is mm-hmm. and and how, you know, it was all this ostentation of his wealth was just really a show, um, a facade, you know, that, uh, that was that was that, that was hiding a vicious, raging alcoholic. Yeah, indeed. We got there in different ways, buddy, but our final score for our final scores for the Abbey Grange are identical, 21.5. And that's one of our let's <clears throat> looking up the list here. That's one of our highest scoring stories in some time. In fact, I can confirm that that is indeed our highest scoring story of the entire collection. Wow. Yeah. So, that's good. I'm glad we saw eye to eye on that one. And I'm also glad that I'm in a position to share with you the musical selection for The Adventure of the Abbey Grange. I'm sure, Josh, that you will not disagree with me. Nay, in fact, I'm sure you'll support me in saying that, really, in addition to the wine glasses, the key piece of evidence here, which clued up the case for Holmes, was the bell rope. Would you agree with that? Yes, indeed. So, in continuing that idea, you might even say... Please correct me if I'm wrong, but you might even say that Holmes was, in terms of the case, truly saved by the bell. When I wake up in the morning, the alarm is out of warning. I don't think I'll ever make it on time. By the time I grab my books and I give myself a look, I'm at the corner just in time to see the bus <laughs> Gotta love that guitar solo near the end. Yeah, it's pretty class. 
wonder what so, happened to the artist of that. Did, did they make an album or something? Or like the Rembrandts, like kind of just did the friend song, like a one hit wonder? I don't know. I, I don't even, I'm not even sure if that's the original. That might just be a, a cover. But uh, anyway, I was actually in my <clears throat> stupor of research and um, just late night preparations. I, I was reading up on the uh, the recording of that song. And apparently Peter Engel, who is it Peter Engel who did all those that show i think it was well he was he was he was one of the main NBC producers yeah, yeah he was killed in 9-11 was he i believe so yeah i didn't know that wow okay uh, anyway he I, I i i believe no no i'm sorry there's another there's another angles associated with NBC, and that's david angles i think they're related though he was the producer of fraser and other shows All right. uh he passed away september 11th hmm. he was anyway. on one he was on the um one on one of the planes wow well, yeah. Engels didn't want uh, the, the he didn't want the um he didn't want the title of the song or of the show in in the actual uh song. I I don't know. It was it was weird, but eventually when they played that for him, he's like, "Yeah, let's go with it. It's awesome." So I guess maybe he thought it would be lame or something. You know, suits yeah. suits think suits think that way sometimes. They do. They do indeed. Well, look, uh, why don't you hit me up with some publication information for our final story, The Adventure of the Second Stain. Published in the Strand, September 1904. This story is set in 1888, much earlier than um, what we're used to. Goodreads is not very um, inviting. I get quotes like, I am absolutely baffled, increasingly entertaining and engaging. What, you being baffled or? (laughs) I don't know what you're saying there, buddy. Holmes solves a case by not solving it. I guess you could say that, although he does solve it, but pretends that he really didn't. Uh, He pretends that he he doesn't solve it, though, I guess you could say. It's a no story. Then again, if you can guess what's going to happen, it decreases the excitement tremendously. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the sky is blue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. State the obvious, pal. Yeah, Captain Obvious. Mm -hmm. So that's okay. Right. Good. That's it. And that's a taste for us. Well, yeah. Well, anyone's not Captain Obvious, it's uh, it's you, Bowman. So let's mm-hmm. uh, hear that summary on if the not. second stain. Well, let's just see for a second. First, I got a little bit more to tell you about the publication of this. Remember, this was the story that wasn't supposed to be because Doyle had said that was it. And yeah, then, you were saying this was going to be a novella. Well, yeah, he 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 had made an agreement with his pal, this Irish publisher, as I said before, Sam McClure. A little note on him. Uh, 1857 and 1949 are his dates. He was an Irish-American publisher who became an important figure in investigative journalism. He offered ACD 75000 for 12 further stories. Doyle rejected this idea, feeling that he had run out of plots. And let's be honest, he's making the right choice there. Yeah. Or 25000 for a novelette, either to run in... Oh, sorry. <coughs> Pardon me. To run in... Um, McClure's ma- own magazine. And so he had, I don't know if he had forgotten that he had made this commitment or if maybe, like I'm getting the feeling, I'm truly getting the feeling, Josh, that from reading his biography, Doyle was a guy who couldn't say no to his friends and he took his relationships really, really seriously because I, I've just kind of got snippets of letters and things that he had said. And anyway, I figure he felt like, well, I've got this last commitment to uphold, and you know, it was, yeah, maybe we were just talking over beers, but you know, I'm, I'm I've got to do this because I don't want my my name and my friendship kind of stained in this way. So, 
he went he went away and, and, and wrote this. Uh, but plus, you'll remember that it was mentioned earlier in a story that there was the story of the second stain. So this is actually a title that was used previously in the canon. I don't, and I should, but I don't have to note exactly what story Watson mentions it in. But it, it was one of those preambles that you were mentioning yes, earlier. Yes, I remember. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. That. I mean, that's why that, that's why the name sounded familiar to me. Like, did we do the story before? So yeah, it was definitely that's one right. of those preambles. Well, by having Holmes recall this case from retirement, because he's he's beekeeping in the Sussex Downs at this point. I like that. I like it that. It is little... cool. But by, but by doing that, Doyle could effectively give his friend something pretty unique, right? Because it feels like a story coming out of retirement. And also, he would commemorate their friendship, but at the same time, convey to the public that, you know, this character no longer works. And so, don't expect much more. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think he's he's trying to set a story here that will communicate a message, not just to his friend, like I'm upholding uh, our promise, here it is for you, but also to the, the cup, uh, sorry, to the public, he's saying, look, this is a special out of retirement story. This is not the beginning of new adventures. The chronology does not continue. You know, I, Watson, I'm writing you this story because Holmes has finally said after years of no, yes. <laughs> basically you know that, that that's the idea so i think doyle was a little inspired by this idea and he saw this as holmes a swan song you know okay okay i i i can see where you're going with that um i don't know the details as, as you do there on, on that but um I, I'm, I'm i'm seeing your jesus star wars is blasting in the background here of the computer uh, yeah, that, that's 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 the publication history. Let me hit up uh, a little bit of plot summary for you and see see what you think of this. Uh, okay, The Adventure of the Second Stain. Watson sets the scene for this final tale by dropping a shocker to contemporary readers. Holmes has retired, keeps bees in Sussex, and would very much like to keep you off his lawn, if that's all right. Yeah, for <laughs> real. The great detective has hung up his deerstalker, cut bait with Baker Street and its irregulars, and took to the country for his twilight years. Moreover, he was damn tired of Watson's narratives that favored plot over precision, and he wanted to give it a rest. It was only upon Watson's nagging that Holmes agreed to the adventure of the second stain, seeing the light of day. Touted by its author, how handy is that, as, quote, the most important international case which he ever been called upon to handle, the story like involves... the Naval Treaty? Yeah, well, we've forgotten about that. This is an improvement, perhaps, on it. The story involves none other than the Prime Minister himself, Lord Bellinger, and the Right Honourable Trelawney Hope, Secretary for European Affairs. Much like we saw in the Naval Treaty, these high-profile clients have lost a document of great importance and require its safe return before an international scandal turns to war, throwing the country into chaos. Time is of the essence, lives are at stake, but Watson can't give us too much information about the case, given its real-life implications. Convenient, again, that ACD has his mouthpiece excuse for any gaps of detail or casual writing. Watson explains, quote, If in telling this story I seem to be somewhat vague in certain details, the public will readily understand that there is an excellent reason for my reticence. And with that, ACD yep. brushes past his own inadequacy. Holmes chews over the facts that were reluctantly given to him by the PM and his foreign secretary and resolves to hit the streets and consult his three top contacts of criminality and extortion for information. No sooner had the names of Oberstein, La Rothier, and Eduardo Lucas passed his lips before Watson announced the suspicious death of Lucas from behind the morning paper, a coincidence that Holmes' top target 
for interrogation had been killed in his Westminster home last night? Pah! Holmes believes in no such thing as coincidence. This is proof that Lucas was likely involved. Halloa! What have we there? The plot thickens quickly, as it is wont to do. Enter stage left via Mrs. Hudson's carefully swept steps, Lady Hilda Trelawney Hope, the Foreign Secretary's wife, flustered in beauty and deceptive purpose. She tries to put the screws to Sherlock about why her husband visited him earlier, and insists to know what was in that letter. Holmes has dealt with amateurs like her before, particularly rich ones who try to throw their class around, and expertly sends her away again like the impetuous, if fragile, young diva that she is. Still, the encounter resonates a significant enough bleep on Sherlock's radar to know that she, too, has something to do with this. The question is, what? Well, the plot's porridge congeals further, and Holmes spends a couple of days in a taciturn, unpredictable mood until news comes from France, of all places, that shines light on the murder of Eduardo Lucas. It would appear that Lucas was leading a double life, and his wife, Madame Henri Fournier, chased her husband back to London and went insane before, or perhaps during, the violently accurate act of stabbing his heart. Well, this solves the murder, sort of, but it doesn't get Holmes any closer to obtaining the document that still evades his grasp and threatens to catapult Britain into catastrophe. Or does it? A little too conveniently, he's at the moment handed a note from none other than Inspector Lestrade, who, from the Lucas murder scene, invites him down to check out a curio of the scene. Holmes suppresses his excitement when Lestrade reveals his mere trifle of an observation, which is that the bloodstain on the drugget mat and the white tile floor aren't in the correct place. Obviously, someone had gained access to the scene and moved things about. Holmes encourages Lestrade to take the guard who was on duty, and grill him for information about the previous night. As he does, the dynamic duo scramble like rats to lift the flooring and search for hiding places under the rug, and they find one. Under the pressure of Holmes's grasping claws, a tile gives way to reveal a dark rectangular hiding spot, but it's empty. More convinced than ever that Lady Trelawney Hope must have visited the site to retrieve the letter, Sherlock speeds off to confront Lady Hilda at home. He wastes no time in accusing her of the initial theft, and after some failed improv at being astonished, the good lady breaks down and bears all, first a confession of guilt and then her cleavage as she retrieves the key to open her husband's dispatch box. You see, years ago, Lady Hilda and Eduardo Lucas had a fling. Remember, he was a ladies' man? Well, he had saved some hot letters between themselves and was now using them as blackmail leverage to obtain a greater prize, political secrets. One of Lucas's spies had learned of the foreign secretary's letter and Lucas convinced Lady Hilda to steal it in return for silence on their tryst. The good lady reveals how she went to collect the letter from Lucas's property after his death and tricked the night constable into giving her a moment's access to the room. No sooner is her tale told, conscience cleared, and let her return safely to dispatch box that her husband and the Prime Minister enter, eager for an update from Holmes. Much like he did with Percy Phelps, Holmes plays a cheap man's David Copperfield and toys with the boys before getting them to discover the sought-after blue envelope in the very place that it was first deposited, Trelawney Hope's dispatch box. Citing, quote, diplomatic secrets of their own, Holmes and Watson leave the chief and his minister scratching their heads, sighing with relief and, we presume, open to negotiating from the treasury a fair sum for the commission that Sherlock might otherwise call public duty. Holmes and Watson walk themselves off the scene for what Doyle intended to be the final time. But we've been here before. Give him a few years and he'll be back. <laughs> Good. Well, 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 well said. Uh, going into the pipes right away on this one. Yep. I found that for the last hurrah, as, as this was supposed to have been, 
unfortunately, we come up with a lot of some of the problems um, that have been kind of haunting Arthur Conan Doyle's writing to the past couple stories that we've read now. It's just, um, just this predictability and... I don't know. There's just like this just lacked the pizzazz to me of the Abbey Grange, um, even of like the other stories in a way too. Like, I think it was definitely more exciting than the Naval Treaty. It was definitely an improvement on that, but I really just didn't feel like uh, I didn't really feel the characters too strongly in this one, or the story, or any other really other elements other than like the supporting cast. Okay, well, why don't we try something a little unorthodox for the in keeping with the spirit of brevity and also just 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 to see? I mean, that seems like a fairly summative claim on your part. So why don't you just rattle me off your points for each component, and then we can talk briefly about them. Well, just discussing the the principles. Um, I we just seen Holmes play this game before with uh, with with with. Uh, with, with dignitaries and stuff i did like and this is why i gave a strong i gave a 3.5 as a whole to on the principles i did like how he managed to hold his own against you know the prime minister and the uh, foreign minister there uh i I, in in regard to you know like okay you either tell me the whole situation or you know or you can or you can leave you know what i mean like he, he was very adamant about how um, he needed he, he he needed their trust in order for him to help them, and I, I I like that about his character that he does not let the bullshit of politics get in the way of getting the job done, especially if it could be if not having that information could be detrimental to his case. So I really like that detail. Um, that to me was one was what was was one of the, of the finer points. I didn't I found that he saw through um, Hilda very easily. And there wasn't really much of a game to play with her, or even with the prime minister, and with, um, and 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 with the um, and Lord Belring and and Lord Belring, uh, sorry, um, and uh, Trelawney Hope. Um, the reason why is because uh, uh, they would not have accepted the fact that that ended up in the mail. That letter ended up in the mailbox at all, and I think that was kind of lazy writing on Arthur Conan Doyle's part, especially of Holmes. I just don't see Holmes believing that that would actually work. So <laughs> I, I, I Can found you that say, just say really... something more about that because I might disagree with you on this. Just just expand just for a few seconds on that. I I just feel that them the, the, they would have checked, they would have known, and I I just I don't know. I just didn't buy. I was wasn't I just wasn't convinced by the writing there that or the dialogue that. They they would have you know not seen that something was amiss. Now I'll grant you they could have been so relieved about it that it went to the back of their minds you know and they just accepted it as as it was. But then again you have the murder of this Eduardo Lucas uh, guy happening at the same time and there's just so many coincidences that that's happening and I I don't know I just don't think people would be that totally stupid. Well I think I think you have to acknowledge something here that. The secretary and the PM don't know anything about Eduardo Lucas. They don't know that he's a spy. That's well, the whole. That's the whole idea. Or maybe they do. I don't know. But the like. I think we're meant to believe that the, the two things are separate. Only Holmes makes a connection between Eduardo Lucas and the secretary's wife. 
something tells me that I don't know they would know that that guy was a spy of home. Okay, there, fair enough. Today's intelligence, maybe you're right. Yeah, okay, maybe you're right. Well, but with, like, maybe like well with Mycroft and whatnot too, right? I mean, maybe, maybe. But I mean, Holmes knew he was a spy because Holmes uses him. All right, fair enough. Like Holmes talks about like he's going to see Eduardo Lucas when Watson says no, you're not because he's dead, and he's like what. Holmes, Holmes cites three spies that he he says this work, the theft of the letter of, of something this high in secret of nature can only be done by one of three men in London. And I'm going to go speak to them. And he's going to start with Eduardo Lucas when, when Watson's reading the newspaper and sees of the murder. And that's when he says, no, you're not because right. he's dead. So it's, no, it's Holmes I, that I, makes that link. I, 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 I agree with you there, but I just don't I just didn't know they, they were acquainted. I just thought he just knew of him. That's all I'm trying to say. I got the impression that he used them or he, he that he maybe incognito or in disguise was also kind of, you know, on the periphery of his own spy okay. network. That's, that's just that, how I read it. That's a fair way to put things together. Yeah, I, 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 I can see how, how, you, how you did that. Even so, the naivety of the PM and the, you know, the naivety of the PM and the foreign secretary is very much alive at the end of the story. I'm not I'm not trying to, to dismiss what you're saying there. I do believe that it is. But I like the way that it sets Holmes up to have an advantage over them. And I do see that I do see that the foreign secretary is really anxious and that he's really concerned and he's a bit fopping in his own way. And the PM is obviously old and he's just wanting, you know, all these things to be settled and rub stuffed under the under the rug and, and not bothered. But the whole revelation leads to a great line, and I just want to read that bit here. You say that the the, the, the dialogue in this in this resolution is a little clunky and unbelievable, and I don't disagree with you. But it does allow Holmes to say this: the premier snatched the blue envelope from his hand. Yes, it is it, and the letter intact. Hope I congratulate you. Thank you, thank you. What a weight from my heart. But this is inconceivable, impossible, Mister Holmes. You are a wizard, a sorcerer. How did you know it was there? And Holmes says. Because I knew it was nowhere else. <laughs> like, I love that line. That's one of my favorite Holmes lines. Because <laughs> it's, a good, it's, it's, it's all it's calculated. A good one. It's a good one. That, that, that's worth a Horatio Kane sunglasses to the, uh, you know, <laughs> put on his sunglasses. Cue the, the who. You know what I mean? It is. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It is. And I'm sorry I didn't get that track set up for you. But I get that's that. That's all reference. right. That's all right. Um, and the end, I, th I think this is just Doyle wanting to be a little bit cute and wanting to say, you know, Holmes is above everybody. He's not just above the police. He's not just more clever than them, but he can pull the wool over the top politicians. He can get, you know, all national security on their knees and not even sure of what happened. And so the whole thing looks like an embarrassment for the government when all he's done is found a moment to slip the envelope in when they weren't looking, right? And the uh, it was last night that Sarah and I watched the Granada uh, Jeremy Brett adaptation of this and it's phenomenal you should watch it it's really good the way it's shot it allows Brett to walk off screen when the two of them are you know just kind of off the scene while the two of them are arguing and kind of unbelieve or, or talking about something and then he just we know he slips it because when he re-enters the scene right in profile in front of the camera he's lighting his pipe and it, it's really quite cool the way that they kind of suggest the you know the offstage action Aside, anyway. has uh has your wife have a, does she have a preference over Cumberbatch or uh, Brett for Sherlock Holmes? I don't know. Um, oh, I think I think she appreciates that they're very different. That one of them is trying to uphold the integrity of the source material, whereas the other one's trying to be James Bond. Like I think she understands the difference, you know. And I think she, I know she likes Brett because she has said as much. I don't know which one she prefers. I think it's kind of like saying, "Do you like?" 
um, the Star Wars prequel heroes or the original trilogy heroes. They're very different organisms. True. That's definitely that, that, that's a very yeah. good point. Also, you, different interpretation. So, yeah. do you like original Yoda or CGI Yoda? You know, well, if I'm <laughs> if I'm eight, I probably like the Yoda that's doing backflips. But because I'm real and older, and I care about the story, I like the real Yoda, played yes. by Frank Oz. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's I think it's kind of like that. But that, that was one of my loves for the Last Jedi was that they had like puppet Yoda back. Yeah, it was good. Anyway, uh, okay, so I went for a four for the uh, principles here. I thought that Holmes was good. Uh, he was better written here than he is in action. So I think that he doesn't actually do as much as he is written. And I've seen this before, but it's okay with me because I'm enjoying him. Uh, Watson is, you know, just kind of hangs around. <laughs> like, Watson's one of the most privileged guys in London because he does so little work, but he gets to be part of so much cool shit. You ever think I about know. that? Like, yeah, he's, he has like a backseat driver to like a great ride for sure. Yeah, totally. And he gets to meet all these fabulous people and he gets to go to all these stately mansions and he's, you know, he even spends nights in some of these places and he gets to be within, you know, the, the equivalent of the Oval Office, right? Like it's, it's pretty cool stuff. It's, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, and of course, you know, and he gets to see, you know, uh, you know, the upper class ladies and all that sort of stuff too. Yeah, so he gets those yeah. benefits too. And he does get them. Um, well, at least he feels them. Let's uh, let's move on to investigation. I think I'm going to surprise you here. Um, I went 4.5 here. I think that this is a very intriguing case. I think that the characters add a lot to the story in a way that perhaps you didn't. And I see it as a huge improvement over the Naval Treaty. Yes, you could say, oh, all it does is, you know, it plays the same rhythm. It kind of does play the same rhythm, but it's an improvement on the rhythm. And as I remember saying before with a couple of stories, yes, we're seeing the same tropes, we're seeing the same the same feels, but they're improved upon here. And for me, that's a big deal because if you make something better, I'll go with it. You know, the Naval Treaty had a lot going for it, and I think it's improved here because it's yeah. simplified a little more. I agree. It's simplified, and I found it's written better. Mm-hmm. Um it's written. It's 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 written better, and uh, and there's no makes, Percy and, Phelps. And, 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 it, and it makes you guess. You're not simply following along. It makes you guess at certain things as, as you read it. Mm-hmm. Well, what what did you go for investigation? Um, well, if I just mention for the principles, I gave three point five. Yep, I thought they were that. pretty strong in this story as well. I don't think they were overly like amazing like in other stories I read, especially not like in the Abbey Grange and other ones but um they were solid and even even watson was kind of helpful in his own kind of way um investigation i gave 3.5 okay cool uh what about perps perps 3.5 same with Uh, me why don't you tell me why you went there not really a discernible perp per se in this particular tale Eduardo lucas was a piece of work but he wasn't really fleshed out he was kind of he was told to us He, he was given to us he sounded intriguing as heck, though. I wanted to meet him. Yeah, just very much. Very Eduardo much. Lucas. He just sounds awesome. And I wanted to see what he would have been like. And then having, like, if this was a novella, I think that's something that they would have probably expanded upon. Mm-hmm. Um, and him being, like, killed, like, midway through or something like that. Yeah, and maybe we, we, maybe we would have had a little trip to France, you know? Like, there could have been a lot of cool stuff going on here yeah. with him. And, the and you know, and, uh, and, uh, Lee, and, you know, uh, the minister's wife, you know, sh- she was another one of those typical aristocratic w- w- woman defiant and meddling in her own kind of way. She wasn't anything like um, overly fascinating, but I-, I found her character had resonance. Mm-hmm. So 
in a way, I found her a bit of a perpetrator in, in that way because she did take the letter and she was being blackmailed. Um, and then, of course, we have another woman without a voice. The other perpetrator is Eduardo's killer is his Creole wife. Uh, and, and that really, really expanded upon other than, oh, because she's half Indian, half, you know, Aboriginal, then she's crazy. Yeah, I found that kind of unfortunate. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm 3.5 on the mm-hmm. perps. I picked up on it as well. I, I just said that, you know, that was obviously a colonial touch that was still very much uh, positive in reading, you know, at the time. And I guess that was him trying to, much like he did with uh, the Andaman Islander, and much as we've seen before in these stories or some of these stories yeah here's a little bit of crazy foreign influence that shows london as this melting pot of you can come in on a train you can come in on a boat you can be crazy but we're still gonna get you you know what i mean we're still gonna get you if we don't if we don't shoot lead into you and sink you to the bottom of the thames we're gonna put you in a straitjacket and throw you at uh, uh, bedlam right yeah exactly exactly so yeah 3.5 was was mine was that yours as well it was indeed yep and, um, and almost for the same justifications? Or? Yeah, pretty much the exact same justifications. I thought that Lucas's wife was interesting, and I would like to have seen more of her with Eduardo Lucas. And I like the idea of him going across you know, the channel for months at a time, leading this double life, and then coming back and being a big ladies' man, you know? Like, uh, you just picture his, his home being festooned with, like, I don't know, um, Karma Sutra pictures or whatever on the wall, you know, like these big palm fronds hanging everywhere and like incense burning. Like that's kind of what I get a feel of. But maybe that's Somebody's maybe that's corn my stash own. and sideburns. <laughs> yeah, something big like that. Chops. And then this crazy French wife, this Creole wife, shows up, right, and yeah. just go straight for his heart. Uh, environment. I also went three point five. I thought it was good, passable plus, but nothing really enormous going on. The the scene. Obviously, of his death was useful and interesting, uh, and it was well detailed. But um, I, it was I don't for sure. I don't understand, and maybe you can help me with this. But I don't understand why. Still, I don't understand why. If um, if the foreign secretary's wife, Lady Hilda, if she saw where the hiding place was when Lucas was sticking the thing in, why did she turn the rug? Like I get why she would have lifted it, but why was the second stain rendered like? Why did she flip the rug over? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. She she knew where it was, so why did she, in lifting to expose the the spot, why would you naturally turn the rug or move it to the opposite side? That doesn't make any sense to me. No, yeah, that's definitely one of those kind of plot hole things uh, where they have to justify, you know, the finding of the stain itself. So that was kind yeah. of the only thing that, that, that maybe that he could come up with. Maybe in the novella, he might have expanded upon that a little more. Maybe. I mean, it, it didn't really take me out that much, but it's just a question that was lingering, you know, when I read nitpick. the end of that. A little yeah. nitpick. So that's the an environmental factor. Were, were 3.5. Uh, you know, they were efficient for the story. Um, there wasn't really anything um, atmospheric about them per se. The story wasn't really interested in the continuing kind of an atmosphere. It was more of like a, dip, a, like a diplomatic political thriller. So mm-hmm. there was the characters and their actions that and and how different actions relate to other ones and that kind of made this story strong. So mm-hmm. environment wasn't a really a big element to the story. So three point five is, is 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 my mark. Cool. Same with me. Uh, secondary characters. Just to finish off my pipes, I went for a solid four, and it was a solid four. Lady Hope, I thought was cool. Uh, Trelawney Hope was good. The PM was interesting. I know you <laughs> thought he was more of a skeleton, 
but I, I uh, you know, in terms of uh, caricature, but I thought he was good. Lestrade, it was nice to see him here trying to, particularly the way he played his own guard, and he was like, ha, oh, see, I told you you'd never get anything out of me. You'll never pass me. I knew as soon as I saw you that someone had been in here. You know, he basically just plays off Holmes and pretends it's all him. And although it's just a quick scene, I do like the fact that he still thought of Holmes liking a trifle in a case, you know, and the trifle, of course, turns out to be the thing that allows Holmes to know that the lady has the paper. So the two of them playing completely opposite paths, one's trying to solve a murder, the other one's trying to recover a paper. And, you know, without knowing it, Lestrade helps Holmes figure out, you know, what he needs to figure out. I thought that was a neat little intersection. And uh, yeah, it was good. I, I would have loved to see them in a novella because I think this could have been cooler. I also like the idea of a novella being written and then having the same ending. I think that would have been fun too. Yeah, yeah, it would have. And maybe those paths that intersected eventually were just a little more developed on each side. 20, 30 pages here, 20, 30 pages there. A trip to France, a little more about Lestrade and his red herring. I think that would have been cool. Yeah, and the, and, and the whole focus of the murder being, uh, of the murder, and then all of, all of a sudden just being a simple, you know, s- solution with the lady you know like i think mm-hmm. that would have been that that, that would have been interesting but mm-hmm. i also i was i would like to have seen sherlock being flummoxed a little bit you know by the case and then realizing halfway through what was really going on i think that would have helped um i gave a four for the uh supporting characters as well i think again okay. because this was a political thriller it involved um you know move and counter move and uh trying to figure out the people's motivations i think characters were would have to be strong in this story and they were so um, Trelawney, the Prime Minister. I will add about the Prime Minister. I did like how he stood up as soon as Holmes dismissed him and he got really angry, but then he sat back down again because he just wasn't used to talking that way. But then he was able to keep his mind, his passions, you know, down and to, to and then he was able to give Holmes what he needed to solve the case. So I, I, I did like that part of his, 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 his character. I also liked how Holmes was showing presence, you know, in, in carrying this picture of Lady Hilda Trelawney around with him because that's how he got his confirmation from the guard by showing her the picture of this by showing him the picture of this woman that it was the woman that was there when he was on duty and that's what allows him to kind of connect the dots you know yeah the constable was was also a a good character too i felt really bad for him actually and i liked i, I liked i liked uh, this is why i gave like the principles a higher mark than i was going to at 3.5 is because i liked how holmes treated um the, uh, the constable, because that's something that he would do. He would use that person for right. advantage that, to solve that the case. That is right. Yeah, he would totally use him. So we're going to that moral c- compass thing again, right? Yeah, but that's a good point. I, 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 I kind of hope that Lestrade kind of saw that, and then just and I, I, and I hope that he was merciful to the constable. Hmm. Uh, let me read you this a little bit. It is, it's a great example, like I was saying earlier, of this Sherlockian scholarship and how it, it often goes to desperate efforts to justify its own existence, okay? Check this out. This is, this is a ridiculous theory of Madame Fournier, okay? Who would have possibly noticed Madame Fournier until now, a person of seemingly no importance, in both Godolphin Street on Monday and on Charing Cross Station on Tuesday? Certainly she appears undeserving of attention. It's also unlikely, argues George J. McCormick, that that responsible doctors would have so quickly concluded that she was permanently insane. Based on such dubious reporting, McCormick proposes that the entire newspaper article about the murder was a fabrication planted by Holmes. McCormick goes on to conclude, or sorry, uh, uh, the newspaper article about her insanity was planted by Holmes. McCormick goes on to conclude that Lady Hilda herself murdered, oh sorry, no, correction, I'm screwing this up. The 
murder newspaper article, The Murder in Westminster. This guy, George McCormick, argues that it was uh, Lady Hilda who murdered Lucas and that Watson invented the story of the French wife at Holmes's insistence to shield her and to conceal his role as a criminal accessory. <laughs> so, I mean, that yeah, I, I, I murdered that particular reference because I was chopping and changing and confusing over the, over the reference. But basically that's an well, example. Though, it's, it's, it's speculation again, right? It's all speculation. And it's just like, I need to write an article and I'm going to go on to, to, you know, to say this and I'm going to argue this because someone else argued that. And I, I understand. Justify my words, uh, PhD. But, yeah. Justify my PhD. Yeah. Um, there's another silly note too. And maybe not silly. But Before we continue, yeah. maybe we take a brief break just for a moment. Well, of course, we, we can we can call it close here if you want to, buddy. No, no, that, that's perfectly fine. I'm just going to uh, – I just have to uh, do something very quickly, and now, then we can do a conclusion. Okay. I'll just be a few moments for sure. Uh, yes, entirely. I would agree with that interesting speculation. Uh, okay, let's, let's wrap up our conversation here, pal. We've got uh, a lot said, a lot done. I also feel like there's a little bit left out here. I wanted to talk a bit about – the identities of Lord Bellinger and the Right Honourable Trelawney Hope in this story, given the, uh, I think, the efforts on Doyle's part to kind of characterize them as political figures of the time, so his readers would would admire and appreciate different facets of them. But oh, but, like Disraeli, perhaps, or uh, I thought, oh yeah, <laughs> maybe Chamberlain, you know, or it could be Chamberlain. Well, the, the Prime Minister could be like a Disraeli type, mm-hmm. and then you could have the the Trelawney being like a young. Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, well, no, I, I guess we kind of did talk to most to most of it. I was just saying uh, about the choice of chairs. Did you make much of that that little thing about um, Watson and Holmes noticing how um, Lady Hilda sat with her back to the sun so that they couldn't read her expression? Uh, I did notice that. Yes, I was just. I I, I assume that that was simply because. Uh, They didn't. I guess she wanted to hide her true intentions, and they didn't or, want to see yeah. her facial expressions. Just to obscure her expressions. That's right. Um, yeah. But it was interesting too. Like a little point of etiquette I picked up on as I was reading that uh, an annotation that um, you know, as gentlemen, obviously Holmes and Watson would have stepped or stood as she entered the room, uh, particularly given her class and her her status. And yes. she would have had the choice of any of the three seats that are in the rooms, but she chose one next to the window, which of course turned out to lead to suspicion when both men later discussed that, you know, like, Oh, it wasn't that interesting that again, a mere trifle. And I guess a, lot of, a lot of what Holmes picks up on are, are setups or trifles. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's a Chekhov's gun and it gets mm-hmm. fired. So it, 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 it works. It works. Okay. Uh, so yeah, our score on that story, my good man, uh, I was a 19.5. You were an 18. So this has been something of, although it has been, you know, still pretty close. I tended to enjoy these stories today a little bit more than you. I enjoyed the Golden Pensnay a half mark more than you, and the Second Stain a full mark and a half more than you, and the Missing Three Quarter a half mark more than you. So, yeah, although we saw eye to eye with a 21.5 on the Abbey Grange, I was a little more generous, I guess, in my reading and enjoyment of these tales than you. Just a little touch. Uh, perhaps you can put it down to some some ennui when it comes to, um, I guess, some of these stories in general. You know, like they're just kind of I'm seeing the formula of them, and uh, 
it's getting harder and harder to distinguish, you know, like which, if I really enjoy it, uh, and how much that affects my ranking. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we've got a couple of musical selections now to finish off our show. Uh, I got door one and I got do- door two. What would you like? Oh, I'll take door number two, please. Okay, well, we've got a song that's closely linked here in door number two to a theme in the story, and not just a theme, a plot point as well, and that plot point is blackmail. Any idea what's coming? You probably don't, but I'll give you a guess. Song about blackmail? Yeah. No songs at the tip of my tongue. Okay, well, the song is actually called Blackmail and it's by an English rock band called 10CC. Even if you don't know them by name, I bet you know them by music. Maybe you know this one, Blackmail by 10CC. This is our representation, musically at least, or the one you selected of The Adventure of the Second Steam. All right. And you want to think, I think, about Lady Hilda here. She doesn't need money. She doesn't need diamonds. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna cut this one short and share with you an idea not an idea an opinion uh, about this world building that you had credited earlier uh, Doyle with pretty good success in it's neat to think of these guys like Eduardo Lucas and Charles Milverton you know having London in a spider's web of intelligence and crookedness and I mean I love the London even if it isn't always eloquently described fullfully described I love the idea of London at this particular snapshot in time being a den of you know good and bad I, I mean do you got any thoughts on that yeah like it's almost like it's like the it's like it's well London is Sherlock Holmes Gotham City you know that's, a, that's a, an excellent analogy actually i never thought of it that way but it, it does make sense with how we talk so often of the dynamic duo it, it really really does you make him wonder where bob kane and bill finger got some of their ideas from <laughs> yeah but uh uh the key the key thing here is that what i find interesting about london uh, and especially particularly in this story which was which made me kind of intrigued about this story more so than i was I was how like it's almost like you're getting that feeling. I think in I, what you're reading at this time period is that feeling or energy of this powder keg that's occurring, mm-hmm. but that's about to occur, in, but like about ten years from now. You know, well, 1904. This was written ten years later. 
the Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated, right? And that's the powder keg. That's the buildup of the powder keg that leads to the first to the to, to, to the First World War. Of course, yeah. And, and there are some feel, readings can, to this. To, there are some readings to this story actually that try to interpret the perpetrators as Kaiser Wilhelm and all sorts of things. It's it's really quite detailed the way some scholarship is on this story. So we are dealing with premonitions of war. You're right. And they have to explore in other adaptations too. Um, for example, uh, Game of Shadows, which is the second Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes film, deals with um, which features Moriarty uh, as the villain. Uh, deals with him basically setting up kind of like a precursor to, or almost trying to start World War One early, and by somehow profiting in the arms race between the two nations. And I felt, and I, did, I had no idea where that story came from at left field when I saw the film. But now after, read, after reading this story, I can see where they pulled the threads from. So I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, that's a nice way to end, I think. Um, and we've got a few years now, not many, but a few years to take off before we get back to Holmes. Um, well, we only have about a month, but yes, we have a few years in the history of the writer before we get to the Valley of Fear. I know nothing about this story. All I know is that it involves Moriarty to some, to some extent, doesn't it? To some extent, yes. Right, but well, not as much as you think it would, though. Well, that's good because I don't need to see him come back from the dead, and really, he wasn't as interesting as some of the earlier villains, anyway. So that'll or be even, us, or even the more recent villains, indeed. Right. So it's goodbye for me. Goodbye for me, in uh, in uh, here in Canada, and uh, you have a great day there, enjoying your your winter in uh, in Scotland. <laughs> okay, buddy. We'll see you next time. Yeah, uh, enjoy your beer. Thanks for everyone for listening. Have yourself a great day.